The following podcast may contain movie spoilers, outdated pop cultural references, and occasional f***ing language. But listen anyway. And, rolling sound, quiet. Speak. Good day, good world. What you watching? Be specific. It's another episode of Subgenre Season 2, a podcast about the movies. I'm your host, Josh Dassel. On this show, we re-explore the movie subgenres you forgot you loved. In Season 2, we are emptying the proverbial lockbox of movies featuring those scotch and soda elbow patch scallywags we call Charming Thieves. In today's episode, Precious Stones are up for grabs. Starring man's man Cary Grant as a cat burglar gone straight, maybe, and Grace Kelly as a socialite's sexy daughter who can't get enough of his five-finger discount. We're headed to the French Riviera for this 1955 action thriller by movie maestro Sir Alfred Hitchcock. Avez-vous bourbon? You might need it to catch a thief. And joining me today, live, live, I tell you, in Studio K is someone who has been with this program before. She is a screenwriter, she is a filmmaker, and a return guest host. It's N.C. Jones. Welcome to Studio K, N.C. Hello, Josh. Hey, thank you for having me here. I'm very excited to be in the land of the living with humans again. I mentioned to you before we went on air, you are the only guest host, not even just guest host, the only other person who has been in the new Studio K besides my wife. It's it's an honor. It's an honor. Um, it's very uh, impressive. You have quite a setup here, and this is going to be a lot of fun. I appreciate that very much. It is a little different from the last time that we talked, which uh, you were with us back in season one of Subgenre. I believe it was episode seven when we talked about The Enemy Below. Really excited to be back. Thanks. Excellent. So I am also excited to have you in studio because as a fan of classic movies that I know that you are, we are talking about our very first Alfred Hitchcock film. And to me, that's exciting. Hitchcock is the goat. There's nobody quite like him. Um, he's definitely the filmmaker. If you go into liking film and get a little into the academics and stuff, Hitch is going to be the guy that you start dissecting first. And so he'll always have a place near and dear to my heart. And uh, I'm happy to geek out about him at the drop of a hat, really. <laughs> well, I have to admit up front, I have never seen this movie before. Strangely, as much of a Hitchcock fan as I am, and I really am, this was one that just kind of missed me all of these years and hadn't seen it. And so I had a chance to watch it for the first time. It's great that I did. That is exciting. Um, I, it definitely doesn't get as much attention as Vertigo or North by Northwest. You know, Hitch worked with Cary Grant on a lot of films, and it is not the one that comes out, but I, I did notice I watched it before, but I watched it twice coming into this episode, and I was like, oh yeah, this is why it's Hitchcock is Hitchcock. It's just like so picture perfect and so deliberate and so, I don't want to call it a masterpiece because I don't like giving anybody that sort of level of authority, but um, there is a reason his name is elevated more so than like any other director, just the amount of control and every meticulous detail is is just 
wonderful to kind of watch and observe. Yeah, yeah, very much so. And I want to take a chance to talk a little more deeply about that with you here in a while. But first, for everybody listening, let's set up this film. Tell us a little bit about To Catch a Thief. What do we need to know? Our other film nerd, Francis Truffaut, uh, in his interviews, talks to Hitch about it. And he says, you know, it's that classic Arsene Lupin, the gentleman thief who's kind of retired, but never really out of the authorities' attention. And we just released an episode, episode three of this season, involving one of the Arsene Lupin characters. Yes, yes. You know, my other favorite thing. That was like Sophie's choice for me, really. Like Lupin the Third or Hitchcock is two of my most favorite things. And I guess the academic nerdery of Hitch won at me out a little bit more, but I definitely love Lupin the Third and even the Arsene Lupin books, detective novels, very pulpy, you know, in the vein of like Sherlock Holmes or Nero Wolf, which I love as well. So this is sort of the forerunner to that. They kind of held on to it a year because of how young Grace Kelly was, but she had already done a film with Hitchcock before. And um, Cary Grant, of course, in the mid-50s at the height of his prowess and as Hollywood's most leading debonair man. So Yeah. And so this, like you said, was, was released in 55. I think it was August of 55 and took him, I think, just four months to make this movie. It was, hey, we got a few sunny months in the south of France. Let's go shoot a film. And we managed to pull this thing out in four months. That's pretty amazing. It's not a complicated film. Um, I mean, it's the plot is very straightforward. There aren't a huge amount of characters, and they set up the backstory really quickly. And it's just all these the chemistry of these characters, and you kind of know where things are going to go. And it doesn't ever surprise you, I don't think. Maybe it does in the in certain moments yeah. because this is kind of a classic cat and mouse uh, movie, right? It's a heist movie. It is a little bit almost like a spy movie as well, because there's some elements of that in there and we can talk about that. But kind of running down who's in this thing and, and who had a hand in making this really tells you all you need to know about quality. So we started at the top. We started it's directed by Hitch, I think, in the same year as oh, what was the other one that he directed in the same year? Uh, in 54, he also directed uh, Rear Window. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, you know, you get Hitchcock with you name it, Psycho and Vertigo and Spellbound, Strangers on a Train and the rest of it. Written, though, by John Michael Hayes, um, who would work with Hitchcock on a couple of films, works with him on Rear Window, and also wrote movies like The Trouble with Harry and Butterfield 8, so some classics there. Yeah, Hitch had that pantheon of folks that he worked with, and he knew, uh, especially John Michael Hayes was, I think, a radio writer originally. Uh, He gave him the dialogue that he wanted, and uh, you had Cary Grant and Grace Kelly. I don't know who better to deliver dialogue, especially kind of as hot and steamy as a lot of this sexual... um, Mm -hmm. tension that's going throughout this film. And for our younger listeners, Cary Grant, (laughs) Cary Grant was a huge actor back in the day. We will, I'm sure, talk a lot more about Cary Grant here, but made some movies that uh, your parents and your grandparents and and old people like me will know, uh, you know, bringing up baby, uh, a lot of Hitchcock movies, so Suspicion, North by Northwest, Notorious, things like that. Grace Kelly, uh, Rear Window, Dial M for Murder, The Bridges at Toko Ree, and then eventually became royalty by marrying the Prince of Monaco and becoming Princess Grace. Um, we should mention, as long as we were talking about the writer, that there I believe there were some uncredited contributions by, was it Alec Koppel, um, who is the guy who would write Vertigo for Hitch later. Right before I think filming started, he did a pass on the script. So because it's Hitch and, and he gets sort of the credit as being such the auteur, it's hard to... Well, there's no gets about it. Yeah. He took 
and yeah. <laughs> made sure he got the credit, right? So, yeah, it's it's hard to like separate out other people's contributions, especially with something as subtle as like a script writing. Um, yeah. But he definitely, he knew what he wanted out of a script. And if you didn't give it to him, he would move on from you pretty quickly. <laughs> it was based all that writing, Hitches, or whether it was uh, whether it was John Michael Hayes or whether it was Alec Koppel, all kind of came from this novel by a writer named David Dodge. And there were some other people involved in this that I want to make sure that we mention. The movie was up for a few different Oscars. It did win one for cinematography by its DP, Robert Burks, who uh, shot movies like Strangers on a Train and The Birds and even one of my favorites, The Music Man, if you like musical theater movies. Um, And then nominated for a couple of others, I think. Grace Kelly was nominated for this one, I don't believe. No, I think think the three on there, if I remember right, um, they were nominated for cinematography, which they won. They were nominated for uh, Best Art Direction and Best Costume design yeah. and, and it was Edith Head. Edith Head, of course, Hitch collaborated with the same people over and over again. And Edith Head in particular, she, you can get a sense of like her contribution because it's so visual and it's so there. And the first shot you see of Cary Grant's character, that shirt he's wearing is like the busiest thing yeah. on the screen and it has this subtle fun because it's stripes and he's a thief and it's like all this these motifs and these patterns. And yeah, nobody did it better than Edith Head. Though. And if you're not familiar with Edith Head, Edith Head was it when it came to costumes back in the day. And I think even the costume building today on the Paramount lot is named after Edith Head. So big name there. And of course, uh, as we mentioned, filmed this in the south of France in the summer of 54 and uh, sounded like a good summer to me. Yeah, I mean, I think it was Hitch's first film that he shot in France. Um, you know, so later when we get into uh, North by Northwest where or, or other location filming, um, it definitely plays out. But he makes you want to go to the Riviera. If you've never been to the Mediterranean part of France, like you can watch this film and be like, yeah, that looks like a place I would like to hang out. You're not going to beat the south of France, especially as it's as it's shown in this movie. And and that is exactly where we start with our feature presentation. Of course, our feature presentation today is To Catch a Thief from 1955, starring Cary Grant and Grace Kelly. There are spoilers ahead. Just know that. If you if you haven't seen this movie, just know we're going to tell you what happens, but it's okay because we're going to tell it in a great way. This is a film that starts with big words on screen, which I love to see in VistaVision. Yeah, if you want to know that you're going to be something visually uh, pleasing um, and trumpets and soundtracks and everything to cue you, uh, let's put the 200-point font whatever blanket there in front of you. Um, but it definitely lets you know. And Just to geek a little bit, VistaVision was sort of a uh, Paramount's answer to the wider screen formats that were coming around at the time because te- you know television had come, the screens there were small, so we're trying to differentiate ourselves as filmmakers, so we make bigger film formats. So we had things like Cinerama, we had Cinemascope, and then the Paramount comes along and goes, uh, yeah, we'll, we'll make... Uh, this division, sure. If you're watching older films, especially stuff that maybe you don't recognize the title on and you don't know what the quality is going to be, but if you get one of those splashes up front, like Cinemascope or, or Vista Vision, it's like, all right, well, I know at least I'm going to have a little bit of a visual feast for my eyes because sort of that John Hammond spared no expense. <laughs> you're going to need that color and you're going to need that space because we do uh, start in the window of a travel agency telling us exactly where we're going to go with this Vista Vision, which is 
you know, a bunch of posters of France and the south of France and isn't it great? We get that through the credits and immediately upon the credits have everything shattered for us by a scream. Yeah, it's just so jarring. Like it's it's like in your face. It's like gives you that little music cue. You're looking at these beautiful travel photos. You're like, oh, thinking about a vacation. Oh, I've never been to France. This is great. And it's like, no, wait a minute. Hold up. And and it's a woman with face cream, you know, on. It's nighttime. She's somewhere uh, down there and is screaming because her jewels are missing from her room. And she's not going to be the only one. We're going to follow this up with, I think, two more ladies who walk into their bedrooms to discover that their jewels are gone or someone is going to take jewels from under their pillow in the middle of the night. And all of it intercut with... With the cat on the roof. The, uh, the like... A literal cat. It is. It's, that's the great thing about Hitch. He will... There's no subtlety. Like, there's no subtlety, first of all, with the device of the woman screaming. Like, you're like, he's to the point immediately. Like, we're not wasting any time. And that is definitely... You get that. And then you get it two more times of two more women getting robbed immediately. So don't... In case you're late from the (laughs) lobby, you're getting your popcorn or something. Just in case, we're going to reinforce this. And then these very high psychoanalytic cat crawling across the roof. The metaphor is not subtle at all. No, black cat, yeah. <laughs> rule of three, we're, t- we're stealing three diamonds or whatever yeah. uh, as we see that three cats. No, it's it's good. And of course, this gets the police all in a tizzy. We can see them meeting and trying to figure out what to do. There is apparently a decision made in whatever meeting that they have just had uh, about the robbery because the next thing we see is a car full of cops driving into the mountains. Yeah, so they have a lead immediately and this is all the information that we have at this point. So we presume that they're after the guilty party at this point. And the way we connect that scene prior, all the screaming and the jewelry and the cat on the roof, to where these guys are heading is that at the top of this hill that the car is climbing up, nice fancy house, nice view. Inside the house, there's a housekeeper. She's cleaning up, doing other things. And one of the things she's cleaning up after is a black cat that's sitting on the couch. And in the newspaper, right? Like, Correct. Uh, and so just in case you need a little bit more backstory. Oh, give we, me more. We get this nice newspaper insert shot and it's crisp font. There's plenty of time it holds there for you to get the backstory. It's very spoon feeding. Again, very little subtlety, just directly giving you what you need to put the pieces together. And the backstory is that generally there's a cat burglar known. Yes, formerly a, a retired uh, gentleman named John Robbie. Who Robbie? 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 Uh, probably the French pronunciation yeah. is Robbie. Yeah, uh, whatever. I'm very Southern American. <laughs> um, but um, yeah, Robbie, Robbie, and his backstory as being a member of uh, the French Revolution during World War II, fighting the Nazis. French resistance. Fr- French resistance, excuse me. Yeah, yep. sorry, not 17. 17- We're not back into Napoleon. <laughs> sorry, jumping around a little bit. So this is John Roby's house. It's big and opulent, probably because he stole everything and sold it to get the house. But this is where we first get our introduction to Cary Grant's character. And he's out in his garden and tending to things. And yes, doing the fl- beautiful flowers, a man of leisure. Again, that wardrobe comes in and I think Edith Head has said in interviews that Cary Grant was the most dapper, like best dressed leading man she ever put a costume on. And I believe it. And uh, yeah, he just looks so great in those slacks and that stripy sweater, <laughs> which again is the busiest thing on the screen. So you don't mistake that this is the most important thing that your eye is going to. And being out in his garden, he's able to look down the windy road that's coming up the mountain. He sees the car coming. He knows who's coming and why they're coming. They're coming for him because he 
is the most obvious suspect. And so he heads into the house to kind of get away from the action. And I want to stop right there just for a second, just because this is our introduction to John Roby. This is the first time we get any sense of who he is. And like you said, we get a lot. We get that he's dapper. We get that he's handsome and tall and that he's, you know, all of these things. But I managed before this recording, I got a copy of, I don't know what draft it was of the To Catch a Thief script, but I got a copy of the To Catch a Thief script. And I just wanted to read the introduction for John Roby from this script just to talk about how things can translate from the page to the screen. Yeah. So this is all we get for John Roby in the script. All right. Exterior John Roby's garden day. John Roby, age 35, is dressed in casual country clothes. Period. Because you either know you have Cary Grant at that point in time, which Hitch had already worked with him. There was maybe some tension of Cary Grant didn't want to work with Hitchhiker again, but that was... As far as I understand, Cary Grant was in retirement. He was supposedly in retirement. Right. Um, yeah, and this was the thing that was supposed to pull him out. He's also nowhere near 35, I no. don't think. <laughs> but that's all right. He is the model as far as anybody goes. I mean, he's instantaneously charismatic, so you don't need to spend that much time. I think Hitch definitely, as he's developing projects, he's thinking about the actors that he wants. So yeah, don't need a whole lot. That's there. all you need. If you got Cary Grant, that's all you got to say. Cary Grant enters the screen. So he sees the car coming. Here come the cops. He knows what's going on. So what does he do? Runs inside, tells the housekeeper, hey, uh, they're coming. Do your thing. We have this sort of pre-planned thing. He runs up to his bedroom and surprisingly to me at the time, I, you know, we'll see what happens with it, but surprisingly at the time, grabs a, a, like a shotgun and starts to load the shotgun, which seems a little violent for Cary Grant. You're connecting to that from that backstory of knowing that he was in the French Resistance and he's leading this life of leisure. But we're also still at this point, he's the closest thing we've got to a suspect on these robberies. So you're, it's certainly plausible that he's about to make some sort of crazy escape and he's going to shoot it out with the cops. So this is like, all right, well, maybe this isn't the guy that we want to mess with. But, yeah. you know, he's level-headed. He's calm. He's cool. He's remaining calm and cool. And so he's loaded this gun. He's standing in his bedroom window. He sees the cops arriving. They come in. Hey, where's John Roby? He comes downstairs and in his casual clothes, of course, and says, uh, you know, what's going on? Why are you here? Uh, we want you to come downtown and answer some questions with us. You know, it's not a question. It's not a request. Yeah. It's a, it's we need you to come down. You're John Roby. OK, fine. I'll go down with you. Can I just change my shirt? Yeah, all right. Go change his shirt. The cops say and let him go back upstairs to his bedroom all alone and lock the door. Uh, this is the quintessential Cary Grant, the m movement that he makes there. He's so physical. And I, I think it comes out of his experience as a comedy actor mm -hmm. and vaudeville and performance. That, that he just does this sort of flippant little like motion towards his chest and like how oh I'm so disheveled right now I'm like I'm I'm I can't, I can't possibly go out into public I'm dressed like by Edith Head I've got <laughs> to get out of these <laughs> wonderful wonderful <laughs> clothes the, it sort of indicates that let me go put a tuxedo on I'm right. gonna go get formal here if I'm gonna be spending the night in jail or something but he doesn't break a sweat it's all cool and calm and goes up to the bedroom but then locks the door. The cops kind of try to sneak to the door to see what's going on because it is a little suspicious. You know, maybe they can catch him in something. And the next thing that all of us hear, as shocking as that woman's scream at the beginning of the film, is, boom, shotgun fire. And what does that do? Well, that makes the cops want to kick down the door. That makes the cops who are standing outside waiting for him want to run inside and help the other cops. And so you've got all the cops converging on this bedroom. 
which they don't need to do. Right, exactly. I mean, it's it's the classic misdirect. And once you get the shot and then them trying to break in, for half a second, maybe you consider, oh, has he, has he offed himself? Has it, have we gone? <laughs> and the, the end. The end, the fade out, right? Yeah. Um, but then it, you're like, oh, okay. He's thinking two or three steps ahead, even though he is, we don't know much about this guy. This is giving us the pieces to understand like how his mind works. And then the next shot is like him coming across the roof. Like all, all the cops come in from outside. All the guards uh, come in and try to break down the door. And he is lithe and limber and springs over the roof and drops down. All 35 years yeah. of him. Yeah, 35. Yeah. And so the cops watch as his car speeds away out of the driveway. Oh, holy crap. We lost him. We had him. He's jumped out the window. He's taken his car. A car speeds away uh, out of his garage and, and off they go. And so the cops give chase. They jump in their car and you get a car chase across the winding roads of the French Riviera, and it is amazing. Let's talk about how this was shot. Yeah. Because in watching this film, this got me excited immediately. This is not just a car chase through streets. This isn't like street-level cameras. This isn't cameras necessarily attached to the cars, although there is a little bit of that. This is mostly a car chase filmed from the air along this winding coastline and little villages and ocean and the rest of it. And filming it from the air from a helicopter? In 1954, by the way. 54. Yeah, yeah, no drones. No, this is still like the height of technical filmmaking at the time. And, and nobody was filming from helicopters. No, no, not at all. I mean, I think it's, it's Hitch always did long shots. He always talked about a 10-minute take. And this is just an extension of that that other filmmakers go on to emulate. And um, for him to know that and give us the layout of the, uh, the countryside as we're getting through there and sort of detailing out a lot of these locations that we're probably going to get to later. And it just is sort of laying that groundwork, but also giving you the action and anxiety and the chase. The mechanic all heist films are built around is the yeah. chase. And it gives you perspective of here's how far ahead this car is, here's how far behind the cop's car is, etc. And you get to see as one closes in on the other and some of the close calls. The closing in is important because once they get into these little tight streeted villages at the top of this mountain, the police car is actually able to catch up and get alongside Roby's car and, hey, get out of the car, get out of the car and look over only to discover it ain't Roby. Exactly. He's outsmarted them once again. He's one step ahead. Yeah. Uh, and driving the car yeah. is his housekeeper who, you know, remember we said, hey, we got this plan that we're going to execute before. She has jumped into the car, has caused a second or third misdirection for the cops. They've taken off from the house and apparently left John Roby behind while they chased her into the mountains. Yeah, and then he it's just wonderful. he just casually walks out and, and catches the next bus. Yeah, comes right out of the house. There's a bus coming by. I'll take that. Gets on the bus, and the last thing we get out of that sequence, uh, next to the last thing, I guess, is that the bus, as it's pulling out, it pulls out right as the cops have come back to the house to now try to find him. Well, he's gone. He's one step ahead of them, of course. And the second thing and the last thing that you get out of that sequence is, of course, the Hitch cameo. It's one of the weirdest ones to me because... Everybody goes into sort of this sort of theatrical pause, like Carrie sort of tilts his head off to the side and is looking like out into the audience, basically. It was odd. It, it wasn't just the sort of stagey sitting. It was the fact that on one side of him is Alfred Hitchcock and on the other side of him is a cage of birds. Yes. And Alfred Hitchcock wouldn't make the birds for another couple few years. And then I think it, it's also it's sort of that 
the old saying, this is for the birds, Cary Grant coming out of retirement. It's all sort of weirdly self-referential, um, definitely breaking the wall. It's very different from Hitch being in a newspaper article for weight loss right. or something on, like on Lifeboat where he's just a small piece of print. And Alfred Hitchcock, I mean, this has become a thing over the years for other people, but Hitchcock too was one of the first people that he just liked to insert himself in his own films in places and, and make cameos. And so you'll see Hitchcock in a lot of Hitchcock films. Cary does that sort of deadpan vaudeville comedy thing. Let's hold there for a minute. Like, uh. May as well hold on the comic moment because it's going to get serious again pretty quickly. Yes, sure. Because when the bus arrives where it's going, which is this little seaside town, uh, the place where it lets him off is right in front of a restaurant in front of the seaside. And he makes his way into the restaurant to a lot of people recognizing him. Not out loud, but you can just tell by the way they look at him. They know who this guy is and they're not thrilled. Definitely not a lot of smiles ahead in his direction even though he's a quite dapper gentleman. But uh, yeah, so the backstory is there. And if you haven't carried over some of the French resistance stuff from that newspaper insert, these characters are almost caricatures. Like, We'll set up the characters. Yeah. When he walks into the restaurant, the very first person that he meets I think, and I may get these out of order, one of the first couple of people he meets is Bertani. Bertani is the restaurant owner. Bertani is played by an actor named uh, uh, Charles Vanell. Charles Vanell being in a lot of different movies that you may know, Diabolique among them. And Vanell, he owns the restaurant, but he also seems to have this history with Roby they get this chance to talk while they're watching the kitchen staff who are through this glass window do their stuff. And the whole kitchen staff knows that Roby's here and they're looking over and trying to figure out what's going on. Vanell is having a, or Bertani, sorry, is having a conversation with Roby where we do get a lot of backstory out. So there is the whole thing about, hey, we were all in the French resistance together. Hey, we were all in prison together. Yes. A lot of these people that are in the kitchen over there, they did prison time with you. They know that you've been cat burglaring since then, but I'm retired. Yeah, of course you are. They're not thrilled that you're here now because that means potentially that you're bringing some sort of danger to them. And I mean, I I think there's also immediately you've gone from Roby's house and he's in this villa and he's he's like set up. He's got vineyards. He's got the maid waiting on him, even though there's some relationship there we get to later. But like it is very unequal the places these characters are at, even though they have the shared history. And so you're thinking maybe some of these mean eyes or, or something of like, I'm in here washing dishes and this guy's out here like with his vineyard and now he's ripping off more rich people and the cops are coming down and giving us a hard time. And we know that they don't like him, obviously because of the looks. We get an extra, they don't like him because somebody throws an egg and smashes it against in the window face, in front yeah. of his face. A lot of the glowering comes in the form of this big, tall, skunk-haired guy named Foussard, played by Jean Martinelli. And there is another man in this scene who I didn't quite catch who he was exactly by name, but he's the dishwasher or something else. He is probably the, you know, your Ron Perlman kind of character in your ensemble movie who is going to be the one that does the punching and the kicking. And um, in contrast to Cary Grant's character, the stealth guy. And you get the gentleman thief bit here, I think, for one of the first times because the dishwasher is <laughs> going to cut him with a broken plate. So what does Cary Grant do? He grabs a bottle of probably expensive expensive wine and just tosses it at the guy and the guy instinctually drops the plate to catch the really expensive wine and the whole situation is disarmed. More of Roby's charm and uh, that using your brains more than your fists uh, moment. Yeah. And so, you know, we get it. Everybody's mad. He's on the run. Bertani says, you know, I'm pretty sure I understand why you're running away. There have been all of these robberies. They all kind of have your mark on them. This is you, right? You're robbing all of these people. 
And Roby insists, it is not me. I have been retired for 15 years. I haven't stolen a thing. This is somebody else who knows how I thieve and is using my style to frame me. Yeah, and he, I mean, he's convinced that it's its somebody that knows his MO so well that the only place he can turn at this point, like, is his old co-conspirators because maybe they're the ones setting him up. Maybe, maybe you know, it's, I, what's interesting is I don't know if we at, at the audience at this point really believe that he's innocent at this point. So I'm trying to think exactly where. I, I on, wasn't sure for a long while. For me, I'm trying to think back to, like, the first time I saw it and I guess maybe I never I was never quite sure he was entirely innocent in the first place. He certainly doesn't behave it. And obviously I think um that thief even in the retired thief trope. If you you try to retire, but you can never retire, right? So it's right. always, you're always going to fall back. So no matter what, he was going to be drawn back into something. So. Yep. You get that trope here. You get the trope of sort of a trope, but also an, an echo of other films or something that would be echoed in other films that you won't know who to trust thing, which you get in sneakers, which we covered earlier in this season, things like that. Um, so nobody knows who's doing anything. Yeah. He, he thinks he's being framed, supposedly. They think he's the cat burglar, supposedly. What we do know for certain is that the police have arrived. They finally figured out where he is or, or where he may be and have come here to ask some questions, which Bertani has to go out and run interference on. While he's running interference, he wants Roby out of his restaurant so that he can talk to him later. Just go over to the boat club at Cannes. I will talk to you later. Sends him with Foussard, who doesn't want to do this, down into the cellar, the wine yes, cellar, wine I believe, cellar, yeah. to go find a boat to take him over there. And Foussard, not wanting to drive the boat himself, enlists someone else. Yes, his daughter, apparently, Danielle, who yeah. is quite young and charming. And it's interesting. I'm, I, I tried to remember what she was doing. Chilling. In the wine cellar. She's just hanging out down there. Yeah, it's France. You hang out in the wine cellar. That's, <laughs> that's what you do. So Danielle's like, obviously, someone that can be trusted to drive a boat, someone who knows her way around, seems maybe a little streetwise. And so Foussard sends Roby off with her and says, go to Cannes, wait for news. So we're on the boat. They speed away from the restaurant, which the cops don't quite notice, but do yeah. maybe. Who knows if they notice, but it's, it's not subtle. So they speed away from the restaurant. They're out on the water and we get this follow up exposition conversation uh, uh, where we get the backstory between Daniel having a, probably a history a little bit with Roby. Obviously, he mentioned something about teaching her English and she insisting he only taught her the nouns and she had to learn the adjectives themselves. And it's very playful. She's very accusatory about his mm -hmm. history and and flirty. Yes. Yeah. Uh, a hundred percent. I mean, I think any 16-year-old in the world would be on a boat with Cary Grant would probably be... I wouldn't be as smooth as she was. She was definitely quite charming. It's interesting, too, because, again, that um, stripey, shirty pattern. She's wearing a red version, and mm. he's wearing, like, this blue version. And so there's, like, this kinship just with the wardrobe that they're having. But then you also get that, like, he's sort of been around as she's been growing up and taught her some things. And, mm -hmm. and so that relationship is there, yeah. She's like, we both know that you stole these things. And so let's both of us agree to the fact that you stole them. And now let's talk about how we can both run away to South America and fence them. Yes, exactly. She's, that's what she's uh, she's been training for her whole life, apparently. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and she lets us know, you know, the filling out of that backstory. Yeah, he went to prison because he was a thief before the war and the Germans bombed the prison. And so everybody got out of the prison and then eventually they joined the resistance. And then because they joined the resistance, they got paroles. And now everybody's on sort of tenuous paroles like that's sort of the setup for why everybody has skin in the game. 
and why the cops are such a threat every time they come around for anybody involved in them. If if one of them goes down, they're all going down because Ruby's such an obvious outcast from the group or he's very separate, you know, being this in this position of uh, luxury that everybody is more than willing to blame him immediately. Um, <laughs> and he doesn't like that. Yeah, he takes offense of that. He just wants to grow his grapes and do tend his flowers. And he's trying to stay away from the cops and it's hard again on this boat because now a plan has entered. The police have a plane out. They're searching for different things. Obviously, they see this boat speeding away and pass over a couple of times to figure out what's going on. How do you take the attention off of yourself of a plane flying by with a bunch of cops in it? You show them a little leg. Yeah, exactly. He, he ducks under uh, into the cabin of the boat and tells Danielle to uh, wave to the police officer. So she hit, hitches up her skirt and does it. And yeah, and tells her, not that much. We, yeah, we want him to go away. We don't yeah. want him to, to circle a lot more. Yeah, Cary Grant has a hard time with te- uh, airplanes, though, and Hitchcock Doesn't he? Uh, He seems to. It's the running theme here. (laughs) And so the boat takes us to Cannes. We end up on the beautiful, amazing shoreline in Cannes with Roby and Danielle trying to quote unquote blend in, which there's no way. He does a quick costume change. He does. Happily enough, there's a pair of swim trunks uh, (laughs) on the boat. So he strips down real quick and decides he's just going to go pretend to be a sunbather. And it's it's quite a nice little eye candy shot there for the audiences of the 1950s of Cary Grant's very tan um, chest and mainly physique. Yeah, they're trying to blend in on this beach where people shoulder to shoulder on this little tiny outcropping of beach. But they're they're trying to blend in with everybody. There is a kind of a bodybuilder cabana boy that almost immediately shows up and says, you know, Mr. Roby, you have a phone call. He just rolls up on the beach, lays down in the sand, and that's where he passes Grace Kelly's character. I mean, he's not there two seconds and, oh, you have a phone <laughs> you call. have a phone so call. What's going on? And, of course, on the phone is Bertani. Bertani is getting him the information that he said he would. He's telling Roby, look, you've got somebody who can give you some information potentially about who could be the cat burglar, maybe, maybe, but you're going to have to go to the flower market in Cannes to find this guy And when you get there, he's going to know it's you, not because you're Cary Grant, not because you're wearing the loudest shirt in the thing. He's going to know you because you are going to be flipping a coin so inconspicuously. Yes, you you have to you have to have a special signal when you're meeting people incognito. And yeah, the most awkward coin flips (laughs) is like he was going to drop it every single time he flipped it, though. It was very entertaining. He he hasn't drawn enough attention to himself on the beach with the phone call and Grace Kelly kind of seeing him and wearing the loud shirts. He goes to the flower market at the flower market. He stands where he is supposed to and flips his coin. He is being observed the entire time we see by what we assume are cops who have kind of keyed in on where this guy is. But they're not advancing yet. They want to see what happens. He finally gets noticed flipping the coin, not by what I expected would be kind of a younger dude who would show up and, hey, monsieur, let's go find this. It's actually kind of an old guy. It's the most British dude in the place. Like, that's the thing. It was interesting. Um, You were talking about the cops. They're not obvious cops. Maybe in the 50s they were. They're wearing suits, but they're very nice suits. They don't look like American cops cops in suits. They're very French cops in suits. And then this British guy with the bowler hat and the umbrella is standing there looking awkward in the middle of this flower market. And the awkward looking guy is a, a guy by the name of H.H. Hewson, played by John Williams. John Williams, uh, an actor in other Hitchcock movies. He was in Dial in for Murder. Um, he was in, well, I guess Hitchcock didn't do Witness for the Prosecution. He did not. Yeah, but it, you know, movies like that, Sabrina, other things. But 
like I said, Britishy, Britishy, Britishy. Yeah, super British. Uh-huh. But he introduces himself as a lawyer, which we very soon find out is for an insurance company. Yes. So he's the guy who is trying to verify that things have been stolen if his company is going to pay out a whole bunch of money. He says he has two wives, his wife and the London office, which is the most British thing to say in the world. <laughs> <laughs> and he tells uh, Roby, look, I don't know what you've been told, but officially... I can't give you information that my company knows about either where jewels are or who has them or how vulnerable they are. I can't give all that to you officially. I would lose my job. And of course, Roby is, well, what can you do for me unofficially? And so Houston, as both of them, as Houston and Roby start to take notice that the cops are there, that their time is starting to run out, uh, Houston becomes more amenable to doing something off the books. He says that he doesn't think Cary Grant's character, Roby, would meet him if he was guilty obviously. But he says, we can work something out. And as they're doing it, the police officers get a little bit bit more pushy. They've been tailing them at a distance for a while. And it just sort of, the conversation gets a little tighter and tighter. And they start walking a little bit quicker and quicker. And Hitch just sort of dials up the pace a little bit. And then we're in a full-on chase immediately. Roby makes a run. And we think, you know, hey, he's going to get away. He's 35 years old after all. He's going to get away from these guys. But he takes a wrong turn, runs into this old woman's flower stand and just blows it up. Flowers yeah. are everywhere. Very slapstick all of a sudden. That touch of humor coming in was uh, always Hitch doing. And um, then they're flopping around. Very Keystone cops all of a sudden. These French, they're better dressed than the American police, but they're obviously not as acrobatic as a- Acrobatic, certainly. Yeah. yeah. Okay, let's set the sequence up real quick and then I'll make the comparison. But like you said, the flowers explode everywhere. He falls on the ground under the flowers. They fall under the ground under the flowers. Everybody's trying to fight their way to the top to get away. And eventually, uh, Roby manages to sort of pop out the other side and almost get away, which reminds me, to do the callback again, reminds me of our last episode, The Castle of Cagliostro, the Lupin movie, where you do have these moments of almost Keystone cops, slapstick things happening in a European town moment. The cops are all over him and the old ladies there trying to beat them all to death with like a pair of lilies or something. Yeah, how dare you knock over my stand (laughs) and she's beating the crap out of them. Screaming in French, which we don't, you know, that's the thing, we don't get any of the subtitles because we don't need to know what she's saying. Ruby gets out and is about to abscond, yep. but uh, the little old lady gets her arm on him. Foiled by the grandma, and the police manage to capture Roby and drag him away, to which Holmes can only stand and watch it happen. There goes his opportunity, ostensibly, to get any of his money back from the jewels that have already been stolen. Well, they dispatch it really quickly. Like, he's Very already... quickly. He sort of unofficially agreed, and then we see him captured, and we're like, oh, no. And then all of a sudden, they're back at Robbie's house It feels drinks. like we missed a reel. Like, there's... Yeah. <laughs> like, somebody, somebody just completely lost one of the reels and we jump from having been arrested by the police potentially for jewel theft to sitting back on the patio with Houston talking about what we're going to do next. We get a little hint at the like French justice system because Ruby says something about there's no evidence so they have to release me and I have to come back in 10 days and didn't think possibly that Houston possibly bailed him out because that was the first thing. They're having drinks. They're back to oh this wasn't as big a concern. He's been running this whole time (laughs) but now he's just back at home having a drink and afternoon. Back at the same house, by the way, where the shotgun was that he fired earlier and the the running from police and the housekeeper. Yeah. So they're back at the house. They're having a drink. 
why not get some more backstory out of the way, which we do, and that comes in the form of Roby talking a bit more about his time in the Resistance. Houston says, did you kill anybody? How many people did you kill? Mm-hmm. And he says 72 without blinking an eye, very nonchalant. 72. So 72 is a lot of people. I've written killers before, and I put a lot of thought into their body count <laughs> in particular, and 72 is even on the high end of my charming murdering heroes. That That is record-breaking serial killer level of killing. That's 72. like multiple NFL teams. That's like <laughs> you have taken out the Dallas Cowboys and the 49ers. It's an awful lot. And not only has he killed 72 people, he's done it acrobatically because they talk a little bit more about it. Well, why did you take up stealing in the first place? Well, let me tell you about this. I was a former trapeze artist yeah. that was uh, wandering around Europe and uh, decided, I, you know, maybe I didn't want to do that. Maybe I want to steal from some people. It's actually uh, interesting. I don't know if it's from the source book at all, but Cary Grant ran away and joined the circus when he was a child. I heard so this. it is. Um, he had that history of like bringing a little bit of his personal life into the stories. So I always thought that was kind of fun. But yeah, he's just in very not an American American, um, which comes up a little bit later. But yeah. And of course, the trapeze artist thing plays into how can he be such a lithe cat burglar and shinny across all of these roofs and drain pipes? Well, because he used to be on the trapeze. That is not a stretch for me to believe either. With Cary Grant as lithe and as controlled as his movements are, it doesn't seem at odds at all. Hitch makes sure that we as an audience don't think too poorly of Roby for all of the stealing because Roby makes sure to let us know he only stole from people who wouldn't go hungry. People that deserved it, you know, the rich. He's very much, I think at this point, Houston calls him Robin Hood, but, you know, that's mm. sort of the gag with his name in the first place. They calls him Robin yeah. Hood, but Roby says, I didn't give away any of the money. Yeah, I kept exactly. it all. Yeah, he's kept it all and he's living in this life of luxury and he, as he puts it, would be hard pressed to give it up at this point. And part of having all that money is you have a great housekeeper and a great cook and so they're enjoying this delicious quiche Lorraine, which Houston uh, keeps going on about. It's so wonderful. And it, and it was made by his housekeeper, which Roby makes sure to share, strangled a German general with her own hands. Yes, she is a woman of many talents. That's such a gentleman thief as well, too. Like having that sidekick or the, the household staff or somebody with this history that is like somebody a little, like an Alfred the Butler type has more skills than possibly you're thinking about. And it's interesting because he's just laid out his body counts. 72 people he's killed. Do we believe that he's killed 72 people? He delivers it dead serious. There's almost no question of like, is this a joke? Houston definitely doesn't take it as a joke. And so he takes the housekeeper strangling the German general uh, right away. And And, and the point of this scene is kind of twofold. And one of it's to get that backstory out of the way. And the other is to draw Hewson closer in understanding what Roby is about. Yeah. Because we're going to need Hewson really on our side if we're Roby in order to execute what it is we want to execute. And so how does he do that? Well, he starts to make comparisons between his own behavior as a thief and a cat burglar and Hewson's job of being this attorney for an insurance company and expense reports expense yeah. reports and maybe like fudging on the expense reports hey you remember that quiche that you're having right now did you pay for that yeah. are you going to write that off in your expense report no this is a, such a crucial element to these gentlemen thieves or any kind of anti-hero you've got to establish these moral stakes and sure he's committing crimes and he's stealing things that don't belong to him but is that on the same scale as people that are embezzling from big companies or 
insurance agencies that try to wheeze a lot of paying for debts that they've contracts and things that they've already agreed to do. And it is something that we have to acknowledge. I don't think I necessarily personally in my life, I'm like, I'm all right. This is, you do what you do, you man. But uh, give that at least that justification for how he's lived his life and that this is a guy that we can pull for. And maybe as we've gone this far into the story, like maybe he isn't entirely guilty, like because the question is still a little bit up in the air, I think. At this point in the movie, and especially with what's coming next, it was still up in the air for me. So we we are drawing Houston closer, which is potentially going to become more important uh, a little later in the movie. Houston makes it clear that he has the list that Roby wants. It does list all of the places where these jewels are and how much and who has them. And he may be willing to hand that over, but he has hedged his bets. He let the police know what was going on first. Surely he would not be as audacious as to rob people now that everybody seems to know that this is what his plan is. And to me at that point, like, I think that does sell me like, okay, yeah, maybe Robbie is not guilty. He's doing something in a moment where logically for the rest of the story to unfold, this is where it's going. He has told the police that he's going to hand this over. And the police are thrilled, apparently, because they think, oh, yeah, this guy definitely did it. He's going to make some sort of mistake. We're going to be able to bring him in like we've been wanting to do anyway. So one way or another, the police feel like they're going to get a win out of this. It's so tongue in cheek to this conversation because this is like where you're deciding, is he guilty? Now he's got six more scores. This dude is just handing him over the shopping <laughs> list. Here you go. Here's our targets. Let's and go. Roby is all too happy to take the shopping list because finally, 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 Houston passes this piece of paper over. You know, you can tell that he's reluctant about doing it, but he manages to pass it over. Roby opens it up for two or three seconds, has a look, probably mentally Rolodexes every single thing that's in it and goes, oh, this one? Oh, this is great. Can't remember if Houston asks him where he's going to start, but Roby makes it very clear where he's going to start. Yes, he's going to start with the Americans, uh, Mrs. Stevens and her daughter, which we've already met her daughter. We didn't really get the introduction, but she's been in the background on the beach. Might have been somebody on the beach watching him walk by in the loud tacky shirt. <laughs> it's all set up to this point. We haven't really done any of the big action-y stuff yet. Um, Um, Minus that opening sequence with the scream and somebody stealing some things, but it is coming. But before we get to that, let's have a moment to geek out. (laughs) Awesome. Today's geek out... Because this is our first time we are introducing a Alfred Hitchcock movie, I just wanted to open the floor and just talk about our favorite Alfred Hitchcock movies or our favorite Alfred Hitchcock stuff or our favorite Alfred Hitchcock facts. Opening the floor, do you want to take the lead? Hitch is, he is one of a kind. He is kind of that mold maker. And I love the way he gets inspired by certain characters. And I think in particular, Cary Grant. So films that he worked on with Cary Grant, Notorious suspicion. Those two in particular I Mm -hmm. love because they're kind of that darker side to Cary Grant. He's less comedic. And one of them, you think he's trying to murder his wife the whole film. So, (laughs) And it's just really fun. He gets into that. And then, of course, Jimmy Stewart, my other main dude, Rear Window and Vertigo. I really love all the evolution of Jimmy Stewart through Hitchcock's movies because um, Jimmy Stewart in that era is the all-American boy. He's um, a World War II fighter pilot. He's like this illustrious kind of like all-star. And 
when you get him into rear window and you have him in a wheelchair and it's all this very psychological drama playing out also with Grace Kelly, it takes a slightly sinister turn. And then you do Vertigo a couple of years later and it pushes it even further because yep. he goes insane in Vertigo. And I love that. I was like, you've <laughs> taken American's most beautiful boy kind of guy and driven him insane to the point where she's like murdering ladies or like he's delusional. He's just had his whole brain warped. And, and Hitch is just so ridiculous. And all of his films are about sex. He has that. He has that. Every single yeah. one. That's what's so crazy about Hitch is that he, especially in this film. Okay, so he talks about Grace Kelly being way more sexy than like Sophia Loren or Marilyn yes. Monroe in the Truthout interview. He's like, I don't like these women that are like sexy on the surface. Like Monroe, he puts down as like having it all on a face. Now, everybody knows Hitch had that type, that blonde leading lady thing. But he likes the ones that are demure where some of that sexuality is hidden in the way it plays out in this he film. He likes them cold yeah, on the, the outside. British, yeah, the British. Yeah. He talks about the British school teacher opening the boys' pants in the back of a car or something. It's like crazy <laughs> psychological, dude. And it's so funny to me because for him to put that lens out there and talk about this version of sexuality versus the other, when some of like his stuff is so, if he's on a psychoanalyst couch, I mean, he loves Freud's stuff. He loves taking metaphors and visual stuff and, and playing with them. And Trains going there. into tunnels. Right. And I think he's letting that out, but he's sort of at the same time trying to be very puritanical about it. Like, it's sort of like disguising it. I mean, he just feels so justified in being like, that's superior to this. And it's kind of like, okay, dude, you're you're the like most pathological, <laughs> manipulative, creepy dude there is. Now, you can make the hell of a film. Don't get me wrong. You make a hell of a film. But, uh, you know, he's always just playing with these urges and impulses and, and how to kind of get a rise out of an audience. And he puts them together like nobody else. And it's something... I don't think any other filmmaker even comes close to. It's definitely the thing everybody aspires to get to, but he just does it in a way that seems effortless. It does, and I think that's an appropriate word to apply to him. Every movie that he made, as complicated as some of them may have appeared just were done with a hand that, like you said, it made it feel effortless. There's a light touch all the way through. To every, actually, there isn't. It's a super heavy touch, but it, it is, somehow so feels controlled. light. It's controlled. It's like every little thing is controlled. Like when he's framing, I mean, the first shot in this film, when the um, cops show up at Robbie's place, like he's up on the stairs and it's, the positioning is so well. And I mean, and that happens in Vertigo in the scene where uh, Jimmy Stewart's character goes talk to the old college friend and there's like all this blocking and it's just like the relationship of the characters come Coming out just with the placement of the characters in the scene and then how you should cover the scene and then the colors you put onto the scene and like and it, you know he's playing with every single detail and it's like that's the thing how do you do that how do you think through that ahead of time or trust your department heads to like piece out that stuff and have that level of control now that doesn't make you a great human being no, no. at all <laughs> um <laughs> You can be in awe at people's genius and them still be terrible people now, especially like the way he treated a lot of his actresses and things that come out that are very just 
somewhere in there in the structures of somebody that was able to work in the British film industry for several, several years and then transplant to the American film industry and being a white male and Mm -hmm. having that level of control and then making films that were hits. And at the peak of like that industrial movie making system, the amount of power that he wields is terrifying to think about (laughs) sometimes. But then like he made these things and they're not all great. I mean, Cary Grant, there's a lot of stuff with these relationships and things playing out in this film and and especially like Rear Window and Vertigo that are is real disturbing but it's still just fascinating to sort of dive into. I agree with you totally. He is at one time both fascinating, super talented, genius level, effortless, but controlling, manipulative, misogynist. Yeah. He's everything all at once. It is everything all at once, all the time, yeah. But if there's anyone to, like, learn how to tell an effective story, he's the guy to do it. If you're just going to take the form of filmmaking and you want to understand how to play your audience's emotions and how to use the image and the actors and the words and the music to convey emotions and put your audience into a place, there's really nobody that's more clear. And it's every single time I go back, I'm like, oh, yeah, it's Hitchcock. Yeah, even the bad stuff is really, really good. The other thing I want to mention with him is we talked about his directorial control and kind of that's what makes this movie but it's also editorial you get into that relationship stuff that's really strange but then these collaborators that come back to him time and time again and you know his wife Alma kind of being there as that guiding hand if you can strip away what the auteur is and figure out the components I feel like she probably has quite a bit to do with the successes of this man in particular and the image so when you Say Hitch. It's Hitch, but it's like eight people in there, probably. Hitch is a brand. Yeah. Yeah, that's a great way to put it. Yeah. He was a good general. And a master of marketing. Um, I mean, I think he parlayed it, you know, into Alfred Hitchcock's Presents. And so if you're able to command these budgets and take all of these amazing people and collaborators and, and put together these films that are just hit after hit after hit, like he was never missed there for a while. To walk to another part about Hitchcock to kind of wrap this up. For some of the listeners to this program, for a lot of viewers maybe of Hitchcock films, they may be most familiar with his later work. Yes. They may be most familiar with Psycho. Psycho and probably North by Northwest. North by Northwest, sure. Maybe, maybe Spellbound. Marnie's one that I think. Marnie, the birds. Yeah, yeah, the birds, right. And it's it's really interesting because I think as a kid, my perception, because I had Nick at Night and we had Alfred Hitchcock Presents, which was sort of like, you know, Twilight Zone and this horror, the sense of horror, right? Suspense is, I tag hitch with suspense more than horror because horror means something completely different to the kid who grew up watching like Freddy Krueger movies but he was the first guy for the American public that became that right like that Wes Craven brain or your John Carpenter or your celebrity like you had Frank Capra contemporaries at the time but they weren't the guys that people were like oh we're he was like the first M. Night Shyamalan right yeah. so, just like that cold of personality putting his face out there and in the films and and so that's how he became known to a lot of people it's understandable that people might know his later work maybe more than his earlier work but I personally am a fan of the older work and I don't know if I can say necessarily what my favorite Alfred 
Alfred Hitchcock film is. There are a lot of them. It probably changes day by day. Yeah. But one of them that I always keep going back to, and it's one that's very different, I think, in a lot of ways from stuff that he did, I guess he only maybe did one or two prior to it, is Rebecca. Oh, yeah. Rebecca is an interesting one because it breaks the mold. It's about sexuality, but there's not sort of the male gaze point of view driving that story. It's it's really a lot closer to that, the house of women. And what is the lead actresses in that? Um, uh, Joan Fontaine. Joan Fontaine, right, who didn't get along entirely with Cary Grant, I believe. Uh, I think they had some falling out, but... Uh, Rebecca is sort of this noir two women going at it uh, in a house with a man sort of in the middle, the man Laurence Olivier. Even though there are a lot of similarities and things that he's going to work with in future films, it does feel like a very different movie. I don't know if it's Laurence Olivier having that sort of, but he was kind of an asshole too. Like, <laughs> Who like, wasn't? Right, <laughs> now it's just like uh, the presence, right? The character yeah. trope. I mean, you're uh, thinking about like Cary Grant versus Jimmy Stewart or like David Niven or some of these guys, but... Olivier is in the model of Hitch's most of his leads, more of his Cary Grant leads, I guess. Yeah. Um, and that was a Hitchcock picture that did win Best Picture at the Oscars. But of course, it didn't go to Alfred Hitchcock. It went to David O. Selznick, yes. um, who was as hard-headed maybe as Hitchcock was a director, Selznick was as a producer, yes. and they they did not get along. My favorite story, I'll wrap everything up here. I, I know I'm going on, but I'll wrap everything up on this with one of my favorite stories about Hitchcock, and it has to do with David O. Selznick. Okay. Hitchcock, you talked about, is known for being controlling. Great. That's what made Hitchcock Hitchcock. Selznick was known for being controlling. That's what made Selznick Selznick. So how does one controlling person get their vision over on another controlling person? You essentially out type A them. You <laughs> out plan them. And so what Hitchcock would do, which I think he would do on more movies than Rebecca, but I almost feel like maybe it was Rebecca where it started, was he would not shoot extra coverage. Oh, yeah. I think I have heard. This he story. would shoot. He would storyboard meticulously every single shot in the movie would shoot only that shot, would shoot only limited takes of that shot and then put it together so that when it went back and it's time for Selznick to watch a cut, Selznick would look at it and go, I don't like this piece. You know, you'd find something else to put in here. And it gave Hitchcock a way to go, yeah, there's nothing else to put in there. Yeah. Sorry, I will not be directed by a producer, yes. I believe is, is kind of uh, what he's going for there. And it worked. Big egos, big egos in the room. <laughs> big egos in the room. And of course, that's why we love Alfred Hitchcock. He's a unique dude. He made unique films. He did them in a unique way. And uh, we are going to talk more about this Alfred Hitchcock film when we get back. Hi, I'm Josh Dassel, producer and host of the Subgenre Podcast, and right now you're listening to my voice. But did you know that this same space is available for you to market your business, sell your product, or promote your favorite cause or organization to our audience of smart, pop culture-savvy listeners with extraordinary taste in what to listen to? Visit subgenrepodcast.com and click the contact link under Advertise on Subgenre to inquire about what we offer. Ad space is available on this and future episodes of Subgenre and The Pickup Shot, as well as our entire back catalog of episodes. We'd love to do business with you. That's subgenrepodcast.com and click the contact link under Advertise on Subgenre. Keep listening, and maybe next time we'll hear your new ad right here. 
We are back here on Subgenre talking about To Catch a Thief with N.C. Jones. This has been a lively discussion so far. (laughs) But it's going to get more lively because when we left off last time, we had left off with our maybe he's stealing things, maybe he isn't stealing things, cat burglar, John Roby, having been handed over a list of where all the jewels are in town by Hewson from the insurance company. And Roby says he was going to start with the Americans, Mrs. Stevens and her daughter, which is where we pick up the second part of our feature presentation. Yeah, because Houston is having dinner with them imminently. The mother and the daughter, right? It's it's yeah. Je- tell me if I get these wrong. Jesse is the mother. Jesse is the mother. And Francis or Francie. Francine, yeah, is the daughter. Grace Kelly is Grace Kelly. And Jesse, of course, she's played by Jesse Royce Landis, who uh, also Cary Grant's mother in North by Northwest. Which and they're is, not that old. Yeah, she's not that much older apart. than yeah. him. Yeah. Uh-huh. Well, he is thirty-five. He Josh. is thirty-five. That's true. So you've got Jesse and. Francis and uh, Hewson all sitting together having fancy dinner together somewhere uh, here in France. And Hewson, being the guy that he is, suggests to the mom those big jewels that you're wearing. It might not be terribly safe for you to be rolling around in those here with a cat burglar on the loose. Why don't you go put those in the hotel safe? Wouldn't that be a good idea? Yeah, she's quite the American here. We get the sense real quick that she's sort of this Annie Oakley type. Um, she's talking about her late husband, Jeremiah, and you get the backstory of how they've come into their money. So they're... Oil. Yeah. She's not precious about her diamonds at all. Yeah, I don't care. What am I going to do? I put them away? No, they're, I brought them so I could wear them. I'm going to wear them. And if they get stolen, that's your problem, not mine. She's not going to live in fear as American are wanted here, right? Um. <laughs> and as they're having the discussion across the room on the other side of the restaurant, Jesse manages to notice a man, handsome man, 35-year-old dapper, yeah, man. Dapper, dapper 35-year-old crossing, <laughs> and she, she sort of makes the comment that she would like to purchase that for her daughter. <laughs> right. And the daughter is really having nothing to do with this. She doesn't care one way or the other. I she's think ice about... Cold. She's ice, ice cold. She's ice cold. Oh, man. I'm heading off to the casino, says Jesse. May as well lose a bit more money. Houston, put away your card. I'm paying for this. You can yes, cheat you, on your you, expense reports for some more. once. For once, you can <laughs> cheat on your expense reports. Yeah. And on their way to the casino, that is when uh, they end up passing closely to this man they've seen only in the distance, uh, which is Roby. Which Roby, we, Roby yes. He makes quite a show at looking at some fake jewels and commenting on how realistic they look. And we don't have these kinds of things back home in Portland. So. In Portland, Oregon. Yes. I got to make sure you understand. I'm an American yes. from Portland, Oregon, and I'm looking at costumes. Costume jewelry. He's very sly about it, I guess. Roby lets the, this group pass and go on to the casino and then heads out after them. We show up next in the casino. We're at the roulette table. Worst odds in the casino, by the way. I, don't, don't play roulette. But the most dramatic odds. <laughs> Jesse rightly refers to it as the whirling pickpocket, which yes. I thought was a wonderful phrase. But as she is playing her money and losing her money, across the table from her, making himself semi-obvious at this point, it will get more so, is Roby. And Roby is playing his franc plaques um, and in the course of doing so is taking a nice long stare at the cleavage of the woman sitting beside him. He's definitely watching Jesse and her daughter for a good time, trying to figure out what his play is here. Like, he's looking real hesitant at the table, sort of putting himself on the same level as Jesse because he's already doled out that he's an American as well. So they're both on each other's radars, but, you know, he shifts real quickly to, like, looking down this young lady's dress and using this as, like, what's the most calculated 
way that I can force myself into an introduction or comedic or something. And show that I'm harmless. Yes. Show that I have money. Exactly. Yeah. And so he accidentally slips uh, a 10,000 franc chip down the front of the woman's Yeah, just dress. drops it. Just drops it <laughs> yes. and it falls down the front yes. of her dress. So clumsy. And then we have to get into this comedic back and forth of how do you get it back? <laughs> well, he, he talks to um, the dealer at the roulette table or whoever is in control of the roulette table and he quickly leans over and speaks to the woman in French and there's sort of this embarrassed Twitter that's going around the table and the lady finally just, she doesn't have the gumption. She pulls out the chips and just, he and he makes a smart ass comment about, I won't be so gosh as to count it. He's dropped it down her shirt. She doesn't want to pull it out of her dress so she just gives him whatever change that equals yes. that from the rest of her stack and off they go. The effect is had in that it makes Jesse laugh. She likes this guy. He's silly. He's ridiculous, but like straightforward. And I mean, he's engineered it so well. And we know that he's done that very well because the next thing we see is him and Houston and Jesse and Francie having a drink together. Yes. So she's invited him to a drink having watched the show. Yeah, they've been drinking for a while. Jesse is, having, yeah, that's true. Jesse is well into her bourbon, the only drink. The other folks are drinking champagne and she's making comments about that. And it's quite fun because he has the vineyards and everything and she's all complaining about aging things. Yeah, and no, stuff, bourbon so. is the only drink. There's yes. no there's no <laughs> argument about that. And this is where we get the backstory, I think, from her in this drunken way about the husband, about the oil money, about how he's passed away and she's just sort of rolling in money and not a lot to do with it, and her daughter. She feels that she's wronged her daughter because she sent her to finishing school. Yes. And, I'm and sorry I sent you to that finishing school. They may have finished, finished you, you there. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Such a great line, yeah. I think there's a duality of what she's aiming for is either she's looking for a night in bed with Cary Grant or she's looking for a night in bed for her daughter right. with Cary Grant. She's, it's the typical, it's, that's a very Hitchcock trope thing too, the women manipulating things, trying to get people into a marriage is a theme that comes up in a lot of the <laughs> films, right? So in particular here, that's the ground that we start on with these characters and she makes no bones about it. She's like, this is what needs to be happening. Why haven't you made a pass at my daughter Francie yeah. yet? And uh, of course, you know, coming back to the, I know why you haven't, because she's so cold. This she's is not new to us. <laughs> Finishing school, yeah. And, uh, you know, the night sort of starts to come to an end. She says, Mr. Roby, you're so great. You sound too good to be true. I'm going to have you investigated. I hope that's okay with you. Yeah, yeah of course, have me investigated. It's fine. I'm from Oregon. <laughs> and may I escort you back to your room? Yeah, fine. Okay. So he bids goodnight to Houston, takes these ladies back to their room, escorts them back, drops off the mom at her room. Goodnight. Yep. See ya. And Francie is heading on to her room at the end of the hall. He walks her to her room and is going to drop her off just the same. And she makes her move. There's been no heat or passion or like interaction up to this point. This is what Hitchcock believes is sort of the indirect sexuality because she just plants one on him. A big, beautiful kiss. Yeah, exactly. She just goes all in and then withdraws back into the room and closes it. That's what you get. Good night. That's just, all right, we'll see. Leaving Roby at the door kind of slack-jawed and dumbfounded a little bit at what's just happened, but also amused. Yes, yeah, he, he's definitely amused. This is not the point where she's won him 
over just yet. No. But it's just the hint that there's maybe something a little bit more to this young woman. And immediately after getting kissed by a young woman, if you are a cat burglar thief, you case the joint. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. And so he leaves this interesting cold turned hot romance for a moment, walks around the corner, notices that there is a balcony. You got to scope the place out, eyeballs the uh, police that's on patrol out on the side. And as he's out on the balcony, I'm still, as a viewer, even to this point, I'm going, is he out on the balcony looking because he's trying to protect them or because he's trying to figure out a way in? It's still up in the air. I mean, he's not really let on too much. But it starts to escalate and or resolve itself for me a little bit in the very next scene. Yeah, because because somebody's been robbed. Somebody's been robbed immediately. And so Roby and Hewson are back in the suite of Jesse the mom for breakfast. Yeah, we sort of get, I think, an explanation a little bit later because he says to Francine something about, you made this plan for me to come have breakfast and then we went on this drive and all this other stuff that happens in a a few minutes. So he's been invited immediately. He's there in Jesse's room. They're talking about what's happened. Francine comes in. Houston wants to have a word with him, but he's like, no, 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 no need for that. There has been a robbery. It's Madame LaRue. Madame LaRue's jewels are gone. (laughs) Jesse, you know, you also have jewels. Maybe you could consider putting those away so that my insurance company doesn't have to pay for them. And again, Jesse's like, nah, if they get stolen, what do I care? I get the money from you. That's how this is going to be. And Francie is there, not mentioning what happened the night before, but uh, asking Roby, hey, you want to go for a swim later? Yeah, she comes up with these invitation for things to do. And he says, sure. Why not? Let's go do that. Houston, of course, is like, I'm sorry, what are you doing now? Like, weren't we going to hang out? We were going to ride the funicular railway. (laughs) And Cary Grant has that great line of like, I don't even know how to spell funicular. Um, (laughs) And Roby kind of needles Houston on this and kind of flashes the list that Houston had given him of where all the jewels are and what they're worth and all of that. Uh, uh, No, I don't remember saying I was going to hang out with you. I'm going to go look for a house. He's got a list of places he needs to scope out. Yeah, some of the roofs need inspecting, I think, is the line. We know that that is his plan for the day. He is going to go look at houses. And of course, Houston knows what's going on. Francie is noticing but not making mention of it. I think think Jesse is completely oblivious to it at this point. She's just happy that her daughter is going out with the handsome lumber man. Which follows up with meeting up in the lobby of going, we're going to go swimming. So here comes Roby in his swim trunks and whatever. And here comes freaking Grace Kelly Grace Kelly. Yeah, and I think that's where you get that break in the facade of Roby's character noticing her for the first time. And it's, you can't not. He just keeps looking back at the hat. He just keeps going up and down. It's and a whole thing. The whole, and we just sit there and absorb it. It's funny because he's almost really disturbed. Like, his face is really concerned, and he's like, keeps going back, and he's distracted at this moment. He cannot focus on what he needs to be doing. So. <laughs> and she's drawing a lot of attention. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, which he's trying to keep a low profile here. And there's no everyone notices that she's there. He makes sure to stop by the desk on the way out. Hey, are there any messages for me? Oh, yes, by the way, there is. It's a note from the actual cat burglar burglar. uh, telling him, Roby, you have already used up eight of your nine lives. Don't gamble your last one. In English, there is a weird thing about that note in particular to me. I don't know. And so they go to the beach. Danielle is already at the beach. If you remember Danielle, Danielle was the the 16 year old who drove him over on the boat to Cannes to begin with. 
her legs. Flashing yeah. her legs. Apparently has been sleeping on the beach all night or something. We don't she's know. She's got her bathing suit on. She's been good to go. Yeah. <laughs> and she's out on a swimming platform, not subtly waving Roby over. Yeah, she catches his eye, swims out to the platform, and then uh, we get a shot of him sort of making his excuses to go have a swim. I'm not sure what excuse he thought would play there. It's like, hey, there's this chick in a bikini out on the swim platform. I'm just going to go over there and say hi, and I don't know her at all. That's where we don't even need the dialogue. We have just a scene, the shot, uh, Grace Kelly laying on her lawn chair, and uh, and he heads out. Meets Danielle out at the platform. The very first thing Danielle does to him is congratulate him on his most recent robbery. Yes, uh, yes. Uh, he was, of course, the person who stole from Madame LaRue. Yeah, she lays herself out really well. Like, I mean, she's doing all of her French teenager girl charms. She can. She's still talking about this trip to South America. We can take off now whenever you have enough money. And oh, by the way, you know, all those people back at the restaurant, your former colleagues, they do want you dead. I keep looking over your shoulder. Yeah, she's really doing the best she can to convince him to go to South America. You know, maybe in other days it would have worked. Unfortunately for her at this moment, he's got other things on his mind, including Francie back on the beach, who is no longer on the beach. Yes. Francie appears out of nowhere like Jaws and jumps out of the water uh, (laughs) right in the middle of their conversation. She's an Olympic swimmer, too, (laughs) apparently. She comes up and they're making some sort of comment. Well, Danny has that line about why would you want an older model car when the new one will last you longer and run better anyway? And then he looks over and he sees, oh, well, my old car is gone. And she swims up. And she's like, no, she just went for a swim or amphibious or something. And, and then <laughs> we get into a little bit of cattiness there. No, there is an enormous amount of cattiness in this scene, and this is one of my favorite scenes in the entire movie. The dialogue in this is outstanding as you have Danielle and you have Francie just going at it in the most petty way possible. Yeah, and Cary Grant in between them doing his comedic vest. Like, he's in over his head. He's physically, like, sinking under the waves because they're all just swimming and treading water there. And, and trying to change the subject yeah. at every given moment. <laughs> and it just keeps getting away. They go back and forth about older women, young girls. And in the middle of the fight, I think it's Roby says to Danielle, who Danielle is sort of escalating all of this, yeah. you know, say, say something nice to her, Danielle, to which Danielle says, she looks a lot older up close. Yeah, just <laughs> This is ridiculous. Which Francie gets to answer with something along the lines of, like, you know, to a child, anything over 20 20. might seem old. And Danielle finishing with, let's go stand in shallower water and discuss that. Yes, they're about to fight. Obviously, Grace Kelly doesn't believe that Roby has only just met Danielle. Like, there's no way. They've been out here talking for too long. There's too much going on. There's something going on that he is not telling her. But, okay, conversation over They leave. They go back to the shore. Clothes have to be changed back, right? Those swim trunks have to go back wherever he got them from. And as he is leaving the changing room, which, having changed out of swim trunks on the beach, changes back into a suit. A pressed suit. I know. It's ridiculous. (laughs) That's all I can think about is, like, there's so many wrinkles. Where are the wrinkles? (laughs) And he comes out in his suit. He reaches into his pocket to make sure that his list of stuff is still there. I wouldn't have left that, but it is still there. The problem is, it has a wet finger mark on it. Uh... Someone has been touching it who had wet fingers. That suspicious cabana boy is like right there. He's doing, doing chin-ups. More chin-ups. Like, so we know he's athletic. This is our potential suspect. He's near the water. Yeah. And so somebody is onto him. He knows that. Could be cabana boy. Could be other people. We are to beach. Lots of wet fingers. So Roby heads back to the hotel. 
he is trailed on the way back to the hotel by some dude in a suit who I, you know, anyone in a suit, I sort of assume is the police. The police yeah. Right, exactly. Francie is waiting for him on the front steps of the hotel. He's trying to get out so that he can go look at all of these different houses and case the joints, but she has other plans. She uh, corners him and sort of suggests that she drive him to look at his list of villas. And yeah, No, 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 you don't need to do that. I'll be, I'll be your driver. I'll do it for free. I speak French. I've got lunch in the car. Chicken. Yeah. I brought beer, a chicken beer, lunch. Beer and chicken. Beer and chicken. Uh, <laughs> she her way to the man's heart. No sides. No. Beer and chicken. That's what we got. You have to come with me. I've made all of these plans. I'm going to keep insisting. This is not a conversation. This is an instruction. You are yep. going to come with me and we're going to go look at these houses. And Roby is just kind of left with no choice and finally has to say, yeah, okay, I'll do it. And he's, you can see the wheels turning in his head. How am I going to do two things at once? Well, the cop's getting closer and closer and just helps propel him into the next scene. They jump in her fancy car and... Off they go. Yep. With the cops in tow. They're right there behind them. It starts as a regular drive. Yeah. He's suspicious, of course, of her. You can tell by the way he's looking at her. You can tell by the way they, they talk. She asks him, I haven't said anything about the kiss from last night. You notice that, right? Yes. And um, they have a back and forth, really, of feeling one another out, of him talking about the way she courts and the efficiency of it, and her talking about his manner in general and being a little mysterious. He is very much sort of disassembling her, uh, he thinks, and it's a great conversation. I mean, it's chemistry building, I guess. All I can think of is, like, this conversation, these double entendres, and, and there's obviously something chasing them the whole time, and he's distracted, and she seems oblivious, and you're just like, there's a lot of things that you're juggling as the audience that's sort of like suckering you into this relationship happening. As they're approaching this villa that they're going to look at, he flat out asks her, like, what do you expect of me? And her response to him is probably more than you're willing to yeah, offer. Yeah, exactly. So they show up at the first villa that's on his list, which coincidentally is the place with the most jewels available. Uh, she doesn't know that, but he's got his list and he knows that. So they, they're walking around the villa. They're checking the outside. Oh, you're here to look at the house. Should we go and knock on the door, she says? No, no, no. Let's just look around the gardens. The gardens a, we don't yeah. want to bother those people. We'll just have our own look. And he spends most of his time looking at the roofs. Yeah, exactly. She catches him eyeing the cornices and all those things. And she points it out. Just looking at architecture, you shouldn't be looking at the garden. We're all walking through the garden. While they're in the garden, strangely, passing the opposite direction of them is the guy that owns the restaurant, right? Bertani. Bertani is there at the place and passes them without a word. It's really weird because you don't recognize him. He's You see him from far off and it's just that sort of, oh, maybe it's, is it another cop? Somebody's following them. He's about to be discovered because you know they're not supposed to be at this estate anyway. And then he gets close and then you're like, oh, and then he just swerves off real quick. It's real awkward. You're like, oh, okay. And that interrupts their conversation briefly that they've been having where she is expressing her displeasure with him playfully so, but not playfully so, about his choice in women. You could have someone like me, but instead you're choosing this little Frenchy girl. Yeah. It, How disappointing. It, it, what a be, tourist yeah, move. Yeah. The commentary in the car when they're there about it being jealousy, and uh, this sounds a lot like jealousy to me. So, um, you know, they're just trying to prod each other. Yeah, uh, and his prod to her is you're insecure. Yeah. You don't know whether people like you or whether they like your, your money. money. Right, yeah. It would be cutting, except it's Grace Kelly, and she's ice, and she doesn't crack. (laughs) And so they're done. He's done all he can do at the villa. He's looked at all the roof edges, and great. I I see what I need to see. And so they get back in the car. 
off they go again, and of course the police take off after them again. And whereas there was a lot of talk on the first bit of their car ride, there was almost no talk in this leg of their car ride because upon starting to drive these curvy roads with big drop-offs on one side and very thin lanes, she starts to accelerate. Are we near the picnic grounds? Here's some. Oh, we'll, what, we'll be what's there. What's the holdup? And she's yeah, what's like, the holdup? Yeah. Right. And so she's going way too fast on these roads to get to a picnic. A, B, just generally <laughs> on these roads, and C, for his comfort. This guy who is used to danger is white knuckling it over on his side. I don't know if. Grace Kelly has had a tale up to now, but by now you're pretty sure she knows something is really up. She has seemed oblivious to the cops, but she's just going ham on there. And it's either like, I'm going to keep doing it, like, and then like a game of chicken with Ruby is. Speaking of chickens. Yeah. So she's dodging everything. There's like an old lady they almost hit, and then the cops almost hit the old lady. And then eventually what undoes the cops who have been trying to keep pace with her is a chicken crosses the road. Yes. <laughs> uh, and out of sight, we do not see it. But we hear them collide with the chicken. Right. And then we cut back and there, there's a phone. I was like, I made a note about that. I was like, is the phone on the side of the road or is there a car phone in 1955? That's a good point. It was, it was weird. They're undone by a chicken talking by an anachronistic <laughs> cell phone <laughs> <Yes>. somewhere. <laughs> and she slows down after that, right? He says, basically, why are you going so fast? And it's at that point that she lets into him and going, well, we had to get away from those cops right, that were following right. us. They've been following us forever. Now, this is where I pause. Yeah. And I have to say, OK, let's address a little bit of the elephant in the room for me when I'm watching this scene. If you don't know the history of Grace Kelly, it would mean nothing to you. Once you find out about the history of Grace Kelly, it makes the scene extra tense because Grace Kelly died essentially that same way. Not the chicken. Not the chicken. Yeah, definitely not the chicken. But she had an aneurysm or a stroke or something while she was driving in the south of France on a road similar to this. There's been a lot of conjecture of... Yeah, I don't think it was the the same same road, road, but but it's a very similar road. Yeah, but it's that weird thing of James Dean and celebrity and like doomed things and seeing signs and stuff that is um, kind of goes into that picture of her being this larger than life character anyway. It's also the kind of second weird bit of foreshadowing in this movie. We started out with the birds. Oh, yeah, yeah. You know, and the birds would be made a few years later. Now we've got driving on this road and then she's going to have her crash a few years later from that. So it's just kind of weird. It is quite weird, yeah. Anyway, they go on to their picnic. They finally find this beautiful overlook spot where they can stop and bring out the chicken and beer. Yes. (laughs) She has told him at the end of this last scene, hey, I sped up because there's cops behind us and I know that the cops behind us were because Dun, 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 dun. You're John Roby the cat. Yeah, I know what's up, dude. She's so happy like to get to this point. She's putting me on the back foot, and then she's going into like Scooby-Doo detective mode. Like, yeah, oh, I, this is exciting. I have figured this out. Let me tell you how smart I am. <laughs> so while you eat your chicken and beer, and by the way, another one of my favorite lines in this movie, she takes out the chicken and asks him, you want a leg or, or a, a breast? Yeah. And he says, you make the choice. Yes. Ad-lib line, I believe, stolen, I think, from a, a John Wayne movie. No, no. Yeah. Anyway, cute line. But it's while they are sitting there and eating this that really she is kind of, like you said, let me show you how smart I am. Let me show you everything that I figured out about you. Yeah, she thinks she's being clever. He plays it really cool. He's just eating his chicken the whole time. It's the weirdest eating chicken sequence I've ever seen. (laughs) (laughs) They're like putting salt on the chicken. I'm just like, all right. No sides. (laughs) Um, Mashed potatoes. (laughs) Right, or something. Coleslaw, anything. She says, look, when you showed up in your boat, 
I saw you swim ashore yeah. off your boat with Danielle. Yes. Like, I knew back then that y'all were together and uh, saw you show up at the hotel together. You are not convincing as an American tourist. You don't act like a tourist. You don't do the things that American tourists do. I know what American tourists look like. Yes, we, you don't talk about politics right. at all. No, <laughs> no baseball, no politics, nothing. And this is when she makes her pitch, whereas Danielle's been making her pitch the whole time about, hey, let's go to South America and fence some diamonds. This is where Francie makes her pitch and says, let's team up. I figured you out. Let's team up and let's do something fun. She uses the cat has a kitten and it's it's oh. so on the nose. Okay, Hitch, we get it. But if anybody's going to deliver lines like that and get away with it, definitely Grace Kelly. And he says, of course, no, no, thank you. We're not no. going to do that. We're not going to team up because I am not John, John Roby the cat. Yeah, no, I'm not him. You're incorrect, my dear. Yeah. What you think you know, you do not know. I am not him. But whoever I am, I am going to kiss you. Yeah, I think that's where that relationship is crystallized for me because before they've been so back and forth, but they've been working sort of at different odds, I guess. Um, and you don't have a lot of insight uh, into uh, Grace Kelly's character. Like, you don't know Francine is kind of on to some of this stuff. So that Ice Queen facade, you don't see through that at all. But mm-hmm. here, when she starts to really get emotional, like, she's, she's like, excited and I'm clever and da-da-da-da and her you know, her blood's getting up. You kind of just buy into that. And it's like, oh, yeah, that's how that chemistry works. There's still power play going on throughout this whole scene because she's sort of, like you said, put him on the back foot with everything that uh, she knows. He kind of seizes power back a little bit when she wants to team up with him and kind of get involved. And he says, no, no, darling, let's just kiss instead. Yes, there's a push and a pull. Like, I'm going to I'll take something from you, but you're not going to draw it out of me. Mm -hmm. So she draws back and takes power back and says, you need to be at my room by eight. Yeah. (laughs) And and don't be late. To which he says... Don't have a good watch. Sorry. She gets the last pinpoint in the scene by telling him to just go steal Steal one. one. Yeah. I mean, it is pretty hot. It's hot. (laughs) So she thinks she knows what she knows. He's trying to deny it the whole time. Bertani gets back on the phone to Roby and tells him that, hey, you know, the reason you saw me at that mansion the other day that uh, I know that you were out there casing is because the restaurant and the boys and everybody have been hired to cater a party. Yeah, a gala or something. A gala, yeah. And so we were there just checking it out for... Food purposes, catering purposes. not suspicious at all. Okay, great. Thanks for that explanation. Uh, I'll see you there later. Roby gets to Francie's room on time. Guess he stole the right watch. (laughs) We'll talk a lot about this scene, I'm sure. (laughs) But walks right through the door and out on this terrace, out way beyond where they are standing, there are fireworks going off in the water. Yeah, Isn't that pretty? She goes in and adjusts the lighting so we can see the fireworks better. Yes, we turn off the lights lights. so that the reason she gives is so you can see the fireworks better, but she's wearing her slinkiest dress. She's wearing her biggest jewels. The first time she's worn jewels and he comments on it. Yeah, control of the image is so wonderful in this scene because the lighting, she backs, she turns the lights out and she kind of backs away and the only thing that catches the light is that flashy, flashy necklace and she's teasing him about where his eyes are and just keep prodding at you. I know you want this jewel. Yeah. How does it feel to have them so close but so far yes. away that you can't touch them? Come lie to me. Put your hands on them. Yes. He's pouring himself a drink the whole time, trying not to pay attention to the yes, diamonds. Yeah. You know, she's like, you know, drinking dulls your senses. He's like, great. Hopefully part of my hearing, too. Yeah. <laughs> so. She pointedly asked him that villa we were at earlier today. Is that the one you're going to rob? Yes. This is your next case. Yeah. She just keeps pushing uh, that button of, I 
know you're the robber. I know you're working these cases. It's still this game to her, right? Mm-hmm. And she knows about the villa. Hey, she teases him even more. You know, I know this is a really great time to go and rob from that villa because did you know there's this gala coming up? And did you know I can get an invite to that gala? And did you know I can bring a plus one? Whatever she can do to get him, yeah. And everything about her, everything about that necklace, everything about that moment just keeps drawing them closer and closer together physically. Yeah, the room, we should start the top of that scene like in a wide, wide, right? They're on either side of the room. There's like a waiter or somebody coming in. And so we just, each shot is like closer and closer and them coming together and the magnetism There's like two celestial bodies because she's in this gorgeous Edith head dress and he's in this tuxedo, the lighting and the fireworks and all this flash and splendor, yeah. And they end up on the couch together, sitting facing one another, her eyes on him, his eyes on her diamonds. Yes, <laughs> as, as the thief should. As yeah. the thief should. And you wrap up this wonderful, wonderfully shot and constructed scene with them simultaneously coming together for what you know is going to happen and... The fireworks montage. <laughs> and the uh, fireworks exploded. Yes. it's it, Is it as subtle as the train going into a tunnel or no, less subtle? No, I don't, it's, it's way less it's subtle. Just, for Hitch to say stuff like, it's better when maybe the sex is off the screen and his visual metaphors and stuff, it's just so hilarious and it's, it's so extended. So there's no question of like, what's happening in this moment yeah he does have to take a pause because he touches the necklace and he just sort of reveals you know this is a fake these are not real jewels so either he tells on himself in that moment because he hasn't admitted to anything up to now or he's trying to throw it back to Grace Kelly, I know you don't know anything, sort of. Like, it's sort of still in this double entendre mode of, is there still some separation between them? But we're going to shift really quickly, and Grace Kelly is going to, like, turn on a dime right after this scene. Yeah. And more discussion about To Catch a Thief when we return. When you're done listening to this episode, why not pick up a great book? Ask your bookseller about Art Curious, stories of the unexpected, slightly odd, and strangely wonderful in art history. It's what Publishers Weekly calls an offbeat and informative outing into the weird, wacky, and unbelievable backstories of some of the world's greatest artists and most famous works of art. Get the scoop on the murder, mayhem, and mystery behind stories like the thefts. Yes, I said thefts of the Mona Lisa, how the CIA impacted artists like Mark Rothko and Jackson Pollock, Andy Warhol's really odd time capsule collection, and the possible murder of Vincent Van Gogh. You'll find all of this and more in Art Curious, stories of the unexpected, slightly odd, and strangely wonderful in art history from Penguin Books, written by Art Curious podcast host Jennifer Dassel. Visit artcuriousbook.com to find your copy now. That's artcuriousbook.com. 
You're back listening to Subgenre. I'm your host, Josh Dassel. I am here with my guest host, N.C. Jones, and uh, we're going to finish off To Catch a Thief. Are you ready for the big, exciting conclusion? Yes, yes. Let's get there. All right, let's get there. We left off before the break with Roby and Francie in the room, and they've gotten together, and there's been all kinds of... Fireworks. Yeah, lots and lots of fireworks. And we pick up the next morning. Yeah. Yeah, it's the next morning, and Francie barges in, and she is so upset. She's as angry and an unpolished as she has been in the entire film. She's just humiliated and betrayed and she's furious and she is intent that Roby give back her mother's jewels. We've been hinting at this and hinting at this the whole time through Houston and finally the mom's jewels are gone and Francie is losing her mind because of it. He tells her, look around. He no longer is denying being John Roby, but he insists that he didn't have anything to do with it. And yeah, she's just so vicious. Like she has been betrayed. It's weird coming off of that fireworks scene because the shorthand there being that possibly they slept together. And now that he's got what he's wanted or he's been after, you know, she is to be tossed away and she's furious and it's just like well this is what you said was happening the entire time yeah, you were excited when i was john roby the cat burglar and not stealing your jewels exactly and uh, now you're not so excited if i come and steal your jewels all right he says well let me go look in your mom's bedroom let me go see if i can figure anything out well, why do you go need to look in there you've already been in there you've stolen her jewels but you know he goes over to take a look anyway when he is in the room with the no-nonsense mother, uh, Jesse, he goes right out and... Confesses who he is. I am, am John Roby. Like, I'm a I'm, former cat burglar. She's like, that's more points for you. <laughs> like, she likes him and, uh, you know, he explains what he's there for and the jewels and being framed. And she's sympathetic to his plight there. And, she is. And she has a reason to be a little sympathetic. Basically, her husband was a swindler. She's kind of known he was John Roby yeah. the whole time, right? Like, I know a swindler when I see one. Yeah. And this dude may be a burglar but he's not a bad guy. He's a real man. Like that's, I think she does use the phrase, he's a real man and he's not like the milksops that you usually hang around with. Francie. Yeah. This is exactly the man that I have been wanting for you the whole time. But of course, Francie has called the police and the police are on their way. Here they come, knock, knock, knock. She lets them in. He's right here, officers. And yeah. we turn around and of course, he's gone. The window's open. Jesse's sitting on the bed and says, I'm sorry, John who? What are yes. you talking about? Never heard of him. He pieces out and doesn't break a sweat as he escapes once again. Yeah, across the roof. So the police are now, of course, hot on his tail. He has stolen something as far as they are concerned. They've caught him in the act or whatever. And so they go everywhere to search for him. And we get the montage of going to his house. Shaking down every last known associate. Yeah, including and, Danielle on yes, the beach. They yep. find Danielle on the beach. Hey, where is he? And, of course, they don't find him. But where he is is sitting out at the edge of the farthest pier he can find, I guess, in Cannes, and fishing. Incognito, a nice fedora or a Panama hat and some sunglasses and a vest. And he's called for Houston. So Houston has come. Houston, you know, is the only one that knows where he is. Roby is able to take the moment to tell him, okay, that list you gave me with the villa on it, I went out and looked at the villa while I was there. I What did he say? I think I saw the other robber. I think yes. I saw the other he's thief. Been casing, he's been casing the place because the gal is coming and he's think he's seen the other thief. He doesn't know if the other thief has seen him yet. I don't 
don't think. Right. And he knows that there's this gala coming up. He knows there's going to be a lot of jewels there. This is going to be the perfect catnip for a thief, haha, to come out and steal things. And so, Hewson, would you go send the police to the villa? Tell him to be there. Yeah. Just after midnight, I believe he says. He's gotten a note as well. He's right. Somebody sent him a note in French, given it to his housekeeper. And that's where the note, that note being in French and the other note being in English, I always sort of thought Francie wrote the first note and Bertani and the crew who uh-huh. was has a reason to get Roby there in the first place wrote the second note. That's a good catch. So, I hadn't noticed that yeah, when I was watching I, it. I, I think I caught the handwriting on the one back at the hotel and I was like, that's some crazy big 1950s handwriting. I don't know. And it wasn't very cursive, but it was just very nice print, but it was definitely in English. And who are the English folks that we know in this film? And it's the Americans at that point. And thinking back to the Grace Kelly character, like knowing basically what's up at this point as she's plotting to get him in the car and everything. I always thought that that was more of Francie's game. Houston thinks it's a trap. Yeah, he tells him, of course it's a trap. Why would you go? Why yeah. would you do this? So. But of course he does. Yeah. He goes. And so do the police. And so does every, every everybody shows up at the villa, apparently including what we think is the the real burglar, right? So we start we start this scene at the villa. We're shooting night for day or day yes. for night. When Truffaut and Hitchcock had their famous conversations, the only thing Hitch really even talked about was shooting the day for night and using a green filter because he really just hated the like super cyan royal blue sky. And he wanted to get that like real night dark. And he, he was just like, I didn't really get that. No, he still didn't like it. What he got. He didn't like it, but it, it looks gorgeous. And you get that sort of all these misdirects, like things on the edge of the frame, shadows dancing across, like playing it out of somebody sneaking through these grounds. Yeah, every yeah. bush in the place shakes. Yeah. At one point, <laughs> somebody is sneaking through the bushes and is uh, shaking them to make sure yes. <laughs> that there's nothing in them. And so you don't know who this is. You don't know who's creeping up on who really until right when whoever this shadowy figure is leaps out of their hiding place, grabs Roby and starts to strangle him. There's a wrench. There's a silhouette of a like a wrench going up in the air and somebody's about to get bludgeoned and Ruby, you get a kind of a close cut on him and he's being strangled and it seems like bad times for John Roby. Bad times for John Roby, except Roby is, I guess, able to get out of the way at the last second or whatever, allowing the person with the wrench to club whoever this is that has jumped on him from the back, yeah, I think is how that sequence goes. Yeah, and he falls off the little private jetty thing and into the water. and then Shallow water. Shadow, shallow water, yes, and then all the cops descends. And we get down to the water to see who is there and who is potentially the cat burglar that we've all been here uh, trying to find. And laying down in the water, dead, of course, is Fusar. The most malignant looking of the crew back at the Daniel's dad. Yes. And so, oh, is it? Oh, Fusar, that must have been the cat burglar, right? Of course. Oh, the, wow. the police are satisfied. They have found their man and Hewson is at the police station and is talking to the police and he has to pay the claim on the jewels, you know, trying to get whatever information he can. Roby shows up nonchalantly, yeah, sits okay. on the desk and says, sure you got the right guy? Yeah, the dude with the wooden leg? Yeah, you know, we had a wooden leg. We're talking about a cat burglar, right? Yeah. You know, lithe and climbing roofs and not clang, clang, yeah. clang with the <laughs> with the wooden leg. That's that's the guy you got. Okay. It's interesting because I he is kind of giving the police inspector like. Sh- 
credit for keeping it out of the paper. So right. it's obviously you don't really want to solve the crime. You don't care. You just want to get it out of the news or something. Yeah, and the police are unwilling to take it back out of the paper. They've already said it's solved, and so therefore it's solved. And so Roby says, well, you know, you do what you're going to do. I'm going to go to Fusar's funeral to see the real man because I guarantee you the real man's going to be there at the funeral. And so next scene, we're at the funeral. Everybody from the restaurant crew is there, including Danielle. And Roby is there standing out again in like a light gray suit. Everybody else is wearing, you know, dark black suits. He's standing out again. And Bertani takes a moment in the middle of the ceremony to kind of pull him aside and talk to him. Telling him he should probably make himself scarce. There's some hot feelings here. Mm -hmm. and Go all uh, the way to America. Or you're going to end up dead again. Right. 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 You see Fusard over there? That's going to be you the next time if you don't kind of take that American lady that we've all seen you with and move back to America or something and get out of here. You know, Roby's not going to do that. Roby tells him, no, you know what I'm going to do instead? I'm going to be at that villa party that you are catering. I'm going to be there and I'm going to find the cat burglar, whoever that may be, that's doing all the stuff. And that moment between those two men is interrupted loudly by a woman yelling. Oh, yeah. Well, that's Danny, right? She's she's pissed and she breaks in and smacks the hell out of him. Yeah, she thinks Roby's killed her dad. Yeah. Calls him a murderer. Irate, yeah. No more of this uh, crush of the older man that I had yeah. and we were going to South America. This that's how a... you evaporate the crush of yes. a schoolgirl is throw her dad off of a cliff into shallow water. Or just be in the vicinity when it happens. <laughs> or be in the vicinity. Yeah. Exactly. And, you know, I guess there's only so much of this that he's willing to take and stops her as you do in 1950s movies by giving her a smack in the kisser. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Well, it's unfortunate. That's where it's uh, those period films get you. That's the punctuation, I guess, on finishing this scene. It allows him to get out of there. He goes and sits out front of the cemetery where Francie has been waiting for him in a car, unbeknownst to him, and is there to apologize. She's, I guess, bought the newspaper line that Foussard's the killer, and she's, unfortunately, she's in love with him. She can't take it. And Roby corrects her. No, no, no. Yeah. Foussard was not the cat right, burglar. Yeah. She says, look, uh, you know, hey, I'm sorry. I know that Foussard was the burglar. He says, no, 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 no. He wasn't. He was there to kill me. She says, if people are trying to kill you, maybe you should stop trying to look for the cat. Roby tells her they should go back to disregarding one another. Yes, maybe that yes. would be a good thing to go back to. Francis then says, I love you. He says, oh, that's great. And says, you know, you don't really. He goes back to that. You play with words. You don't mean them. But he's broken the ice at that point. So she's like the real vulnerable young girl that she is. He says, you're not in love with me, but I will make you an offer. I'll get you the thing that you do love, which is action. Yeah. Right. You get me into that party. Remember you said you could take a plus one. You get me into that party at the Sanford Villa so that I can catch the cat and you're going to see some different fireworks. Make sure to ask her because it is a costume ball. Make sure to ask her what she is going as. Louis the 17th. Right. Everybody's going in sort of like period dress. So he's like, great. Where'd you get that? In Paris? Okay, great. So we fast forward then, however many nights later it is, to party night at the Sanford Villa. There is a red carpet. All of these people in giant Amadeus-like, you know, Victorian dress are showing up. The most French, yeah, the most French party you could imagine. Everybody (laughs) wearing jewels. Everybody. Yes. And so Bertani 
and his catering crew of questionable people are watching all of these jewels come down the runway. Among all of the people coming down finally get to see that Jesse and Francie are there in their big giant costumes wearing big giant jewels. And between them, they have a really interestingly costumed third person. Yes, it's a manservant. I don't know what the intention is. Some sort of colonial French African garb. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And yeah. The important part is it covers the person's face head, entirely. Head to toe. Yeah. Head to toe. He's- yep. And he's carrying a giant parasol. He's basically like, you know, walking with them as the man servant or whatever behind yeah. them as they, they walk down the red carpet. Okay, great. Even though the face is covered, we know that it's Roby yeah. by the voice. He's yeah. talking. He's going, okay, we're going to go over here. We're going to do this, whatever. He's talking. We can hear Roby's voice, so we know that that's him underneath there. They head to the police commissioner. They notice that the police, hey, there's the, the police Police are hanging out. Well, several people are watching, right? So the waiter crew are all kind of staking out. Everybody knows he's there, so the crew is there, and they're possibly going to kill him. Correct. And, and so everybody's looking for John Roby. No one has seen John Roby yet. And so here come the the mother and daughter, Jesse and Francie. They go to the champagne table. Francie's getting her champagne. Jesse is refusing all champagne and making sure in the French line that she knows most, avez-vous bourbon, (laughs) to make sure that they have her drink and makes a show, really, of saying John Roby's name John, I have forgotten my heart pills or whatever. That any nearby bystanders would uh, draw the conclusion, yes. Yeah, and he answers out loud, of yeah. course, yes, of course. And it's definitely John Roby yeah. under that. And yeah. so so they are, they have made it very clear that this is John Roby in here. I'm going to go and get your pills. Where are they? They're upstairs? Okay, great. I'm going to go upstairs. While he is upstairs, this allows the police to sort of confer amongst themselves. It allows the restaurant crew to confer amongst themselves. Okay, this is our guy. Everybody, don't let him out of your sight. Yes. He returns with the pills, hands them over, and Francie takes him by the hand and they head to the dance floor. While they are on the dance floor, they join, I don't know, what do you think, probably 25, 30 other couples out there dancing? There's a good amount of people there, yeah. This is our timekeeping device, right? Yes. We have 30 people and then this starts to dwindle and then we make our way through the evening. They go from 30 couples, maybe down to 15 couples, maybe down to eight couples. The entire time, they are visible. Just dancing. They're dancing, dancing in dancing. a circle out on the floor, dancing so long that they get to the end of the night and they're the only people left on the dance floor, cops and everybody watching yeah. them from the that's periphery. That's the thing that's so great about that shot is it is the cops, but it's also the waiter staff and like they're all just like staring at them and it's the most awkward thing. <laughs> And I think it, as an audience, we're probably already figured out. We know exactly what's happened at this point in time. We're just waiting for that shooter drop or like that reveal to come out. And we know that the night is over for dancing yeah. because the orchestra finally just gives up. The orchestra, the conductor's just like, oh, the hell with this yeah. and stops everybody and they leave. OK, fine. So then Francie leads John away from the dance floor. They walk back into the mansion. They head to her room. Cops are following. They know exactly where he is. And into the room they go and boom shut the door. Cops know where John Roby is right now, right now. but yeah. they haven't caught him doing anything yet. And we get the disguise reveal of it's not been John Roby the whole time. It's uh, Houston. It's Houston, who's been sweating to death. He's been dancing for like six hours. <laughs> he's so tired. And so he takes off this mask. It's been Houston the whole time. So then we understand, okay, when he went to go get the pills, he swapped costumes yeah. with Houston. Houston's been out there the whole time. Well, what's John Roby been doing? John Roby is now out on the roof. Hanging out on the roof, his favorite place. And the reason he's been up there is to sit and watch for 
the real cat burglar. Below him, the caterers are loading up their trucks. Everybody's kind of doing their thing. And the lights in the house go out. So all of a sudden we have a dark mansion. We have people in various places that, you know, we don't know where everybody is all the time. We see shots of a burglar taking jewelry. Jewelry, yeah. Uh, takes from a nightstand, I think. And Roby has sort of been waiting it out and waiting it out and waiting it out all night. Hadn't seen anything. Looks like maybe he's about to give up and change positions or something when he hears a noise and looks kind of off in the distance across this far mm-hmm. roof and sees someone actually moving right, on the roof. Right, shadow coming from the edge, the eave of like a, one of the window hangs or exactly. something. Yeah. It's the real cat burglar. Yes. He's been right. There is another one. Here comes the cat burglar across the roof. So he gives chase. There is this sort of loud crash that happens in the course of him following the cat burglar and getting closer and the cat burglar knowing that maybe there's this person on their tail. There's a crash that, of course, draws everyone's attention down below. And the spotlights come on. The spotlights come on. We light up the roof to kind of see what's going on. And Roby finally manages to get the best of the burglar, get up on the burglar, pulls off the mask and reveals... Danny. Oh, oh, it's Danielle. It's been her the whole time. This young girl who's talked a lot about robbing things. Oh, she turned out to be a robber. (laughs) (laughs) She was going to go fence the diamonds in South America, like for real. She was apparently on the level the entire time. Well, I think for... She didn't admit to being the burglar, but... uh, That's true. Well, she was never really accused, but it was such a... Like that culmination, like I said, that first shot of her, she's wearing a striped shirt just like John Ruby. It's red, and he's wearing the blue version of it. And she taught her English, so it's that sense of, like, this was my teacher, everything that I know, and who possibly could be. So it's like all these pieces are so obvious. It's like, ah, oh, of course. <laughs> and, and he puts a little more of it together and says, well, you know, you always did Fusar's leg work. Ha, ha, ha. Yes. The guy with no with leg. leg. And so, of course, it's you. She manages to get away, though. She sl- slips him, and then the police start to... They're shining the spotlights yeah. at the roof, and of course, they don't see her they at see first. see Robbie. Yeah. Right? yeah he's... Oh, look, there it is. There's John Robbie. He is yeah. stealing stuff. Yes. Eventually, though, it becomes hard to miss her yeah. because she goes jumping from one part of a roof to another part of the roof in the course of trying to get away and doing that. She slips. She falls. We end up with her hanging by one hand from the gutters, you know, stories above her right. doom. Yeah, the most dramatic shot there. The spotlight, like, they're chased across the rooftops and, and all the attention from the folks down on the ground and the spotlights and everything drawn to that pinpoint moment where he gets her and he's just confess. Yeah, he's there. He sort of extends his arm like, I can save you or I cannot save you. It all depends on whether you confess right now. I just need my ass covered. That's correct. (laughs) And that comes in kind of two forms. The first is in order to save herself, she drops the jewels. So the bag falls down to the courtyard where everybody is. It splatters open and here's jewels everywhere. We know that she has been the person taking them. Yes. Proof number one. Number two is he's saying, oh, my grip's getting less and less. It's I'm slipping here. You need to confess. So she confesses to him. Okay, yeah. I took the jewels. No, I need you to confess to everybody. Yeah, like, we're going like, to a little louder. Like, they're not going to believe me. This isn't going to stand up in court. <laughs> and so she turns around and yells back down to the courtyard, I took the jewels. Okay, tell him why you took the jewels. I took the jewels because I... I was helping my dad. He says, well, you know, it wasn't just your dad, was it? Right, exactly. He's yeah. put it together, really, like, and that sense of why Bertani has seemed slimy the entire time. It's because he is. It's the whole crew. The whole crew. They've all been working together the whole time. But she has finally loudly, with police below, 
confess to all of this. So he is able to pull her back up onto the roof and bring her to safety to deliver her over to the cops who we assume then are going to grant John Roby the freedom that he never had before and stop calling him for every little thing that happens in town. That is where it could end. But You know, Hitchcock likes to put a little point on things at the end every now and again, and we get one here. They're back up. I think we finish at his big mansion up in the hills where we started the thing with him. Francis and the police show up at the house. Hey, we're here because John Roby, I guess, has gone back ahead of them. She talks to him and really just makes him admit, you couldn't have done this without me, right? Right. Yeah, Yeah, yeah. we make a good team, don't we? Yes, yes. To which he finally has to say, yeah, okay, I couldn't have done it without you. We make a good team. Here's another kiss, baby. Pulls her into the kiss for the happily ever after. And the last line in the entire movie where we understand what's going to happen from this point forward. Is that the mother will come live with them. Yeah. So this is where you live. Mom's going to like this a whole lot. Yes, exactly. Roll credits. They're uh, going to get married. It's going to be happily ever after. We'll see if they steal anything together in the future or not. But either way. Mom's coming to live with him. Yeah, it's such a right Hitchcock and the whole domestic ending being the sad ending, the non-happy ending is just so typical. It's really funny. I just am like, okay, dude, whatever. <laughs> the mother-in-law, yes. You you didn't have a problem with Jesse at all. It's just like, oh, this, the ball and chain, that stereotype, that gag. It's an easy laugh. And but, from what yeah. I understand, that was not supposed to be the ending. No, I think he was not supposed to end up with Grace Kelly's character at all, right? I don't exactly remember what the real one was going to be or what the one in the book was, but I'm pretty sure that he got into his biggest fight ever with John Michael Hayes about how to end this thing. And I think Hayes wrote, I don't know, 20 different endings for the thing and some sort of combination between Hitch and Hayes and the studio or whatever. Like they they finally came up with what the ending was going to be and I don't think anybody was happy with it. It feels a little anticlimactic, but yeah, I just roll my eyes at Hitchcock at this point. Well, whether you like it or whether you don't like the ending, that is the ending of To Catch a Thief from Alfred Hitchcock. We've made it through the whole thing unscathed. We survived. We We survived. survived. That's right. No mother-in-laws to speak of uh, living with us here. You are a fount of information (laughs) on everything, including heists. Let's put that wisdom to the test in the segment that we call You Can't Handle the Truth. You Can't Handle the Truth is our quiz segment on this show. Uh, It is where you play for a prize that I can absolutely not award you (laughs) if we get done, but that's okay. Today, you are going to be playing for a picnic lunch of chicken and beer. beer. With Cary Grant. With Cary Grant, correct. I'll take it. So we got three questions. They are multiple choice questions. I'm going to ask them of you. You're going to answer them, and we're going to see how many you get. Are you ready to play NC Jones? I'm ready. All right, here we go. Question number one. Finish the following quote attributed to director Alfred Hitchcock. Quote, The length of a film should be directly related to the endurance of the human what? Is it A, eyeball? Is it B, brain? Is it C, bladder? It is C, bladder. That is correct. It is C. Bladder. The premise of that quote, I love that quote, by the way. The premise of that quote, I think, is supposed to have originated with George Bernard Shaw, uh, playwright George Bernard Shaw. Uh, Hitchcock quoted it in various ways in different interviews, including in a 1964 interview with the San Francisco Examiner when he was promoting Marnie. And I believe the quote was, I think it was Shaw who advised young playwrights to gear the length of each act to the endurance of the human bladder. So attributed to Hitchcock a lot of times may have come from Shaw. We don't know. 
but great quote nonetheless. It really touches on his efficiency in filmmaking because once your audience gets distracted and there's nothing more distracting than needing to get up and go to the bathroom. Fantastic. All right. You are one for one. All right. Let's move on to question two. In 1907, the London Daily News applied an animalian term for an individual named Arthur Edward Young that is still in use today for people in his line of work. What was it? Was it A, loan shark, B, cat burglar, or C, nighthawk? I'm going to go with cat burglar. Seems the obvious choice. Are you sure? I think so, yes. Of course, that's correct. On account, I think, of his climbing abilities, they dubbed him the cat burglar. Apparently, prior to this 1907 mention in the London Daily News, the term cat burglar was really only used to refer to people who had literally stolen a cat or in cases where the cat was the thief. The cat uh, was the burglar. It was yes. the burglar. Correct. Interesting. All right. That's two out of three. Two. You are already a winner. All right. Let's try to go for the hat trick. Okay. okay. Are you ready for question three? Yeah. Here we go. Which of these home electronic marvels was made available to the general public in 1955, the same year as the release of To Catch a Thief? Was it A, the transistor radio, B, the microwave oven, or C, the electric razor? Mm, I will say B, the microwave oven. And you are correct. Yes. Three for three. There was an American engineer. His name is Percy Spencer. He invented what you might have heard as the radar range. Uh, yes. uh, he had used World War II radar technology to invent it. It was only for commercial use back about 1946. And then in 55, Tappan released a home appropriate Great. home microwave. Still wasn't good. I would bet those microwaves from 1955 were just as good as the microwaves today. All right, that is three for three. Congratulations. Yeah. Applause for you, NC Jones. I will have the chicken and beer and Cary Grant, Grant sent to you to forthwith. House. That's yes. right. Yes. <laughs> Stand by for that. Oh, goodness. Well, we can wrap it all up, I think, with Rave Runnel or Refund. Okay. In Rave Runnel or Refund, we give our final thoughts on the movie. Is it a rave? So great. Going to tell everybody about it. Go see it today. Is it a rental? That's eh, fine. I, maybe I'll see it again, maybe I won't, or a refund. Please give me my money back. Never want to see this again. NC Jones, To Catch a Thief from 1955, rave, rental, or refund. It's a rave. You can't miss Cary Grant and Grace Kelly in this film. I mean, they're the sexiest couple from Hollywood, classic Hollywood of all time. It's a fun, lightweight, easy movie. There's never a dull moment. It's either sexy, sexy talk dialogue and or action or really hot people in the film and gorgeous costumes by Edith Head and Hitch at the top of his game. And it's in the south of France. Yes, gorgeous locations. If you can't tell by this point, it's 100% rave for me as well. I think I mentioned I had not seen this film before planning for this episode. It stuck with me from minute one of watching it. Loved it all the way through. Definitely a rave for me. And of course, it's a rave because it's a Hitchcock film. I haven't seen a bad one. Yeah. That's it. We are through to catch a thief. We have made it from start to end. We are both raving about it now. And so I'm going to finish this up by opening the floor and saying, NC Jones, what do you got going on? Tell the people where they can find you and what they need to know. I'm out there in the interwebs um, working on a couple of short film projects and working on feature scripts. Do a couple of writing workshops at the left door. Find us online if you're interested in screenwriting. And yeah, just hanging in there. Looking for my heist, planning more heists in the back of my head. Invite me whenever you find the right one. Okay, you will do. And I will invite you back. Hopefully you will come for season three. If there is a season three of subgenre, we would yeah. love to have you back. Yeah, dude, I love talking about movies, so I'm back anytime, yeah. 
AOS. This has been Subgenre, a podcast about the movies. Subgenre is a production of Kabunki and is recorded and mixed at Studio K. This episode was written, produced, and hosted by me, Josh Dassel, alongside my guest host, screenwriter and filmmaker, N.C. Jones. Our theme music is Still Room on the Night Train by Ketza, featuring Solar Flare. If you love this show and you need some more, subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, pretty much anywhere else you choose to listen. And if you can while you're there, leave us a five-star review. Believe me, it is massive in helping other listeners find us just like you did. You can also support Subgenre with your donation. Cash only, please. No jewels. You'll find the link to do it, more about our show, and all of our archived episodes from Season 1 at our website, subgenrepodcast.com. We also do the Insta and Twitter thing, both at subgenrepod. Come back soon for our next episode of Subgenre Season 2 and more charming thief movies. But in the meantime, please remember, we're all different. So no matter what your subgenre, be kind to who you meet. That's a wrap. Kabunki.